Hey everybody, this month's episode of the Rotto Talks Through podcast is brought to you by Elf Creek Games. And for the last few months, I've been able to talk about some of the very, very cool games that Elf Creek has been working on recently or just now releasing. And they're all gorgeous. They all play really beautifully. But I'm most excited now, this month, to tell you about something that's coming in the future. And I think this is a worldwide announcement for a game that they're planning on getting uh, launched on crowdfunding by the end of the year. It's called The Clocks of Hickory Docks. And I love that title, although it is subject to change. As is this uh, very rough early pass of the cover art from a uh, relatively new artist of the board game sphere, Chloe Dominique. If you go to Chloe's webpage, I mean, geez louise, this is just absolutely stunning, stunning art. And so I have no doubt that The Clocks of Hickory Docks will continue with uh, Elf Creek Games' uh, streak of just just gobsmackingly gorgeous games. But what I'm more interested in is the gameplay, because this is a time track game. And I always love the idea of time tracks. Going back to Glenmore or Thieves, or heck, even when I don't think they work as well as they could, like Takedo, I just so love that idea of the bigger an action I take, the longer I have to wait until I take another one. And this promises, from what I've read of the rules so far, to really change it up. Because most time tracks games, you're incentivized to take small jumps so you don't give your opponents a lot of opportunities to do a lot of things. Um, And sometimes you'll make a big jump if there's something far ahead that's really, really important. But it's hard to get the balance right. Here's what uh, Clocks Vickery Docks does. Yeah, you take small jumps so you won't give other players as many actions. But if you take a big jump, if you do a really big action that requires you move really far around the workshop and spend a lot of time committed to one particular action, whatever it might be. The bigger and longer your action, the more cookies you collect. Did I mention your cute, adorable little mice in this game? Uh, mice watchsmiths? And these cookies you can spend as a resource when it's not your turn to duplicate the actions that other players are getting to do. I love that! That sounds like such a cool new idea! That, oh, I take small turns so other players don't get to do stuff, or I take big turns so I can get a lot of resources Resources that let me do stuff while I'm waiting for my turn to come around. Now, I'm beholden to what the other players choose to do, but that just sounds so awesome. Such a very, very cool new twist on Time Tracks from designer uh, Robert Fisk, I believe. And with what I expect is going to be absolutely amazing art from Chloe Dominique. I think this is definitely one you're going to want to be watching for, folks. Uh, like I said, very early um, sneak peek, the clocks of Hickory Dock title, subject to change. And um, thank you, Elf Creek, for sponsoring the show, as always. And uh, now, to the actual podcast itself. Oh my gosh! You folks really made up for last month when we were a little shy on questions. I think... I think we're going for like four hours in this episode. It was two hours of game stuff and then two hours of personal stuff with Jen. Wow! We had a lot to talk about, so I really uh, shouldn't um, delay any longer. So without further ado, let's get right to it, folks. You know it's going to be a bunch of game-related stuff, then it's going to be a bunch of personal stuff, and uh, wow, we dig deep on several really big topics this month. So hang on, and we'll be right back. Okay, everybody, let's get to those game questions, starting with Chuck, who wonders, why do you need 
Why do you feel the need to change the rankings on your games because of rules changes in later editions? Shouldn't the game stand on its own based on the original rules of the game? Agricola was a finished game! Why change its ranking based on the revised edition? Did the original Seven Wonders ever actually change its rules until the reprint? If not, shouldn't it stand as the rules were printed? What Chuck is asking about is a follow-on to a question from last month, um, where it uh, was where it was pointed out to me that maybe the official Agricola first edition rules that I had been using for a long time for the opening player draft had changed. Because I've talked about this in the past. Jen and I do a very specific version, a a non-traditional draft, whenever we start playing a game of Agricola. And somebody said, I've never heard of that. You're the only person who does it. Okay, I gotta... Hold on a second. And uh, sorry about that, folks. Just uh, uh, adjusting some equipment. So I've never heard anybody do it. And I've got the revised edition. I don't see anything about it. And I thought, oh, no. One of the reasons I love the game so much is because of the way this draft works. It was a variant in the original rules. Now, after that episode aired, um, Jennifer... uh, Oh, I'm sorry, Jennifer. I don't know your whole name. I know it's Schlickburn or Schlickburn or something like that. I will refer to Jennifer as the gaming pioneer, uh, which is what she is. She actually contacted me directly and said, no, no, don't worry. Your official draft rules... Your your draft rules are still official. They are in the revised edition. She pointed out what page they're on. I'm like, phew, that means I don't have to change my rating. Which gets back to Chuck. Why do I change my rating? Here's the deal, Chuck. A lot of people, for better or for worse, use my ratings as a metric for deciding whether they might be interested in a game. And if if those Agricola rules had changed, and yet I was rating Agricola based on rules that were no longer valid, because years from now, no one can buy the version of Agricola, the first edition. People will only be able to buy the revised, or the revised revised, or whatever. And so... I feel it is essential that I keep my ratings up to date based on the actual current state of the game that people can go out and buy right now. Not some game I bought 10 years ago, because that's a meaningless distinction for folks. And like I'm the, the best example of this by far, you mentioned it, is Seven Wonders. Seven Wonders, its revised edition, radically changed the game by eliminating the long-standing two-player variant, which I love. One of the reasons... Seven Wonders made my top 10 games of all time was because of the amazing two-player free city rules. The Jen I both think is phenomenal. It's the best way to play Seven Wonders. But the publisher, Repro, said, hey, we're killing that. It's officially no longer part of our game. And um, if you go out and buy Seven Wonders now, there is no reference to that. And so I feel I need to keep my list up to date with what people can actually buy in the market. I know, uh, Chuck, if you are writing a question to me, that probably clues me into the fact that you're a hardcore board game geek aficionado. And you are aware and appreciate that, oh yeah, there's different versions and Rado's probably talking about the first edition instead of the, the revised edition and all that. But casual people who might just look and say, hey, what's Rado's top 10 favorite games? And they say, oh, Seven Wonders, that's really great. I know Rado's really known for his two-player stuff. They go out and buy Seven Wonders and like, what the heck? There's no two-player. It's a three-player minimum game. I don't understand. That's why I feel um, honor-bound, almost, to uh, because my rankings list, which anybody can find at ranked.rado.com or games.rado.com or top.rado.com. There's three different versions of it. I keep them up to date with the state of the rules as they exist today, not the way they existed a decade ago. Um, right. And then Chuck continued, changing my Carpe Diem ranking made sense because they changed the uh, released rules... 
but we still play with the original rules anyway. Yeah, I mean, that's another one. I knocked uh, because the publisher made Carpe Diem, in my opinion, significantly worse. And so I knocked it down because you can't get that... I mean, the weird thing about Carpe Diem is it was a stealth change. They didn't say, hey, look, here's our new revised edition with revised rules. They just said, oh, our second print run. We just changed the rules and we won't even tell anybody. But I knew, and I'm like, okay, this game does not deserve to be in my top 50 anymore because the game is nowhere near as good as it was if people buy that game years from now. So that's why I do it, um, Chuck. Um, hopefully that makes sense. Okay, Daniel wonders, one, do I have any interest in Oathsworn? Yeah, I'd say so. I, I, I'll tell you what really makes me interested. Oathsworn, for folks who don't know, is a cooperative boss battle game, which is predominantly focused on, hey, every time we sit down to play, we're going to fight a big, gigantic monster and some minions and whatnot, and it's just all focused on this big boss fight. I believe that's the case. I think maybe they have a little bit of adventure stuff, but really the heart and soul of the game is boss battle after boss battle after boss battle. What... I am attracted by is the fact, like many, many cooperative games, Oathsworn has a deck of events, and um, many, many games will say, hey, at the beginning of every round, draw a new event card and see what happens, and now respond. The, th- the fact that Oathsworn throws that out the window and does a brilliant thing, which is, hey, at the beginning of a round, draw an event card. That's what's going to happen the following round. Meanwhile, now you have to deal with the event card that was drawn last round. That I love. And I wish more publishers would do it because it means less random variants where, oh, well, there's no way we could have prepared for this and, oh, we were just kind of screwed. And more long-term strategizing. Okay, we know we have to deal with this right now. Oh, there's an opening. I can hit him in the left ear or whatever. But we know what's happening next round. Next round, he's going to heal. So now is not a good time for me to do this. I should wait. That extra level of strategizing the game gives you by simply letting you know uh, around ahead of time what the events card is going to be is phenomenal. And quite frankly, any game that features an event deck should do something like this. Most famously, the first game I ever saw that did it was um, The Captain is Dead, where it's a cooperative game where you're kind of on a Starship Enterprise kind of situation. And as long as your ship's sensors are up, you actually get to see what the next three events are in order, because your sensors let you know what the uh, enemy ships are going to be doing. And that's brilliant. But then when your sensors go down, it's terrifying, because suddenly all those disappear, and then you're flying blind. And you really feel how important it is. Really nicely done. And so that was, excites me about Oathsworn. What I'm less excited about is, at the end of the day, oh, I decide now is a good time to stab the gigantic demon tortoise in the ear. And then let's roll some dice and see how it works. Oh, I missed. And that's kind of disappointing. That's always a little bit less interesting to me. Now, there have been games, you know, Roll to Resolve, where I overcome my distaste for it. But it gives me pause. But you're in luck. Um, Daniel, because Shay should be covering Oathsworn. We're waiting for a review copy to come our way. Originally, we were hoping it would get covered this month, but his review copy hasn't shown up yet. So it'll probably be next month that Shay will be doing a run-through, and then, then I'll be able to find out what... Then I will know if I truly have interest, because Shay does just as good a job as run-throughs as me. Honestly, he does a better job um, because he still articulates all the thought process of every move, but he makes a lot less goofs than me. Plus, I love his left brain, right brain thing that he does. So, an Oathsworn run-through is coming soon, and I'd be able to more effectively answer your question after seeing that. 
Daniel Lin has a second question. Any news on the 4X co-op game front that we are both eagerly awaiting, if I remember correctly, smiley face? Daniel, I assume you're talking about Plunderous. No news on that front, I'm afraid to say. My friend, who is the designer of it, and I've helped him with some, some design elements. At one point, we talked about I'd, I'd, th- I'd put in so many hours that maybe I should get a co-design credit because I'd really shaped a lot of the content. But, oh man, the game has changed so much. He did a run-through for it two years ago, I think. And, um, you know, it, it didn't really take off because he launched it at a really bad time and, you know, against some very, very popular games. He took it back was and retooling, trying to address everything. But um, he's... This was not one of those quick, oh, well, let's just take it off the market, make a couple of changes, and then put it up six months. He really, very seriously took all the feedback he got. And so he is really working hard to make sure that when the game does launch, it will you know deliver on everything everybody wanted. Um, one thing that's making it take so long is uh, it, so the changes that were made required new art, new graphic design, so that is taking a while. I keep telling him, just put prototype stuff up. It's okay. But he's a perfectionist. He doesn't want to put it up till you can see exactly what the game is going to look like. So it is it is still taking time. But I can tell you, I mean, all the new stuff that's been put in, an entire expansion has been developed. And in the meantime, the co-op game has gotten even better than it was when I talked about it two years ago. So, uh, but I, I'm about, you know, he... He is very serious about this. He um, he wants to make sure everything is perfect. So he is definitely a measure 10 times and cut once sort of fella. Um, right. Okay. Next up, Donna is back asking, or saying, checking in to find out about the merch with Gelato and Etsy. This has been an ongoing series of questions from Donna for a few months, because a couple months ago, Donna pointed out that the, the uh, outlet that I did Rotto t-shirts with there was some question as to whether they would sell your data and you ended up getting spam mail, and I didn't want that to happen, so I left that. And it's taken me a little while, but I can, and I, when Donna asked last month, I said, give me one more month, Donna, and I do have it up and running now. If you go, Donna, now to merch.rado.com, I will do that right now. If you go to merch.rado.com, you actually end up going to my wife, Jennifer Ham's Etsy glass store. Um, where you can buy cute little glass meeples and witwad and scullies and you can buy jewelry and uh, all kinds of stuff. Um, and so we are now selling a Rotto Runs Through t-shirt and a Gamer Glass t-shirt um, through this. A few people have used it successfully. Right now it says four people have it in their basket, so four people are thinking about buying one of these shirts. And um, yeah, that is the situation. Right now it's telling me... Oh, I know why it's telling me Australian because right now... My browser thinks I'm in Australia for reasons. Um, but you know, so we are ultimately much more comfortable with this. Uh, what I did is I, I I switched over to a service called Gelato that um, works with print shops around the world. So if you order a Rado shirt now, it will very likely be delivered from someplace in your country of origin, or at least in your continent of origin. So instead of taking six to eight weeks to get to you and charging a ridiculous amount of money in shipping, it'll show up in a week and the shipping will be very, very low. Super cheap. And um, plus, they featured a shirt line, um, I forget what it was called, but it's a shirt line that... um, 
focuses on um, you know zero sweatshop labor that all of their stuff is produced um, in environmentally friendly ways with um, you know you know well compensated employees so there's like no blood sweat and tears that goes into the making of Rado merch so all that stuff together. By the way, I got the uh, direction for all that from the great guys at Shelfside. After I saw, they did a ton of research, and if it was good enough for them, it was good enough for me. So now you can buy stuff directly through Jen's Etsy store by going to merch.rado.com. And right now I don't have much. I've made a third one, which is a little cute Rado-approved uh, shirt. It's just got like a little badge. It says Rado approved on it. I don't know what to do. I am definitely open, folks, to suggestions or feedback. What do you want to see in a Rado merch store? Some people have said they want to see a shirt that says, hey, everybody, with my Rado logo. Would there be interest in that? That makes sense. Is hey, everybody, my catchphrase? Some people say it should say cool, cool, cool. Because I say cool, cool, cool a lot. I don't know. I'm definitely open for feedback. But it is now working. I've done a few test runs. Ruel got the first ever one, and he wore it at Gen Con. And uh, he said it was comfortable. It fit perfectly. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with the results. And um, yeah, that is the situation, Donna. It's up. It's running. You should not have to worry about your personal data um, because Jen controls all of this through her Etsy shop. And uh, we're, we're good to go. Now I just need ideas for what to put in the shop. So I uh, put that back to you, audience. Let me know what you think. Okay, moving along, we have got Joseph. Joseph currently only possesses the base game of Dominion. And I am wondering, continues Joseph, what necessary expansion should I pursue? I'm honestly a bit overwhelmed with all the content available. I also wonder if I should still develop a Dominion collection, considering I already have several other deck builders in my collection. Oh, that's a good question. I've, I've got one answer for you. Um, Joseph, do a search on YouTube or Google for Rado Dominion Top 10. And because a couple of years ago, I did my countdown of, at that time, it was actually a top 10 plus one, the 11 expansions that were available. And I break them down into what I like about them, what I think their the relative strengths and weaknesses are. Now, since then, two more expansions have come out. Menagerie and Allies. Menagerie... Somebody asked me before. Menagerie would probably make around number four or number five on my countdown list. I have not played Allies yet, so I can't speak to that. But like I said, you'll you'll find out about 90% of all your options if you do a search for Rado Dominion Top 10. I really that I'm really proud of that video. I spent a lot of time on it, really dug deep, and um, I, I try to do more than just the current level. Oh, here's what this one does, and I like this one. I, I really talk, well, how does this change the game? Why do I like it? Why do I not like it? That kind of stuff. So hopefully, Joseph, that will help. And help you decide, too, if you want to actually go down the rabbit hole of Dominion um, stuff when there are so many other deck builders out there as well. Totally valid concern. Okay. Uh, then Joseph continues, I'd also like to congratulate you on expanding the Rotoverse so well. All the contributors are fantastic. I was wondering, what qualifications uh, do you have for a potential contributor? That's a good question. Um, I kind of don't have any. I'll be honest, uh, Joseph, between me and you and the thousands of people who will listen to or watch this podcast, ultimately, the reason there are contributors on the channel, it was always something in the back of my mind that I thought maybe I would do someday. But, what, four years ago now, give or take, a longtime friend of mine uh, who had been pressuring me for years. He was just on the sidelines watching how I was doing the show, and he said, you should really start treating this more professionally. Um, you should... 
uh, be charging for uh, you know doing Kickstarter previews because you're the only pr- channel in the industry who doesn't, and all the other channels hate you for it. And this is true. I actually used to get hate mail from other channels saying, "Please stop doing this. You're running us out. You're the biggest one, and you don't charge, and so you make us look bad." And I'm like, um, but. I'd always kind of pushed back on it, but then I moved back to the States, and I had to take care of my mom. Um, Jen has to help out with her. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on. Our, our cost of living skyrocketed through the roof when we suddenly didn't have government-provided health care because we weren't living in Europe anymore. And I finally said to my friend, okay, I do need to start treating this more professionally you do it. Uh, you've been pushing me for so long. You do it. You become my channel manager. So I have a channel manager, and um, you know. So anytime anything new happens on the channel, you have him to thank for it. Now I'm not going to say his name because he's very shy. He wants to be the guy behind the guy. He does not want any publicity whatsoever. But um, he's the one who said you really need to start getting more voices on your channel, and he found Shay. And um, you know, I, I was kind of aware of Shay. I think I'd seen one or two of Shay's video, but you know, he thought I think Shay could really do it because of Shay's acting background. You know, he's a, he's a trained improviser in um, L.A. Um, you know, because not anybody can do run-throughs the way I do them, where it's less about just, hey, let's just wrote, recite what the rules are. Let's actually demonstrate what it feels like to play. Let's break down our inner monologues as we play, uh, which requires a lot of spontaneous, on-the-fly response while keeping a constant pattern going. And so he suggested Shay. Shay did a test. The first test was okay. The second test was great. And um, that was the first step. So my friend, my channel manager, to answer your question, Joseph, his main qualification is, one, has this person demonstrated through the work they've already done the potential to be able to hang with a Rado runs through approach, which is all about spontaneous, contemporary, spur of the moment, train of consciousness presentation style. Not everybody can do that. A lot of people, when put in that situation, need a script. Um, you know, to follow or something like that. And then the other thing, he doesn't want anybody to come on the channel who hasn't been working hard on their own media content for at least a year to prove that they've got the uh, the staying power. So there have been a few people who've never done anything, said, Rado, can I send in a submission tape? I'd really like to. And his answer is always, well, yeah, run a YouTube channel or a TikTok channel or a Facebook live stream or a Twitch or whatever it is. Run that for a year, then come back and uh, we'll take a look. So since then, I mean, I've been a little involved. Um, you know, he and I... Uh, you know, I, I now kind of scout for people. Like he brought Shay, and uh, he brought Kimberly. I brought in Amy and Maggie, and I brought in Ruel. Uh, he brought in Ryan. He brought in Grant. Although with Grant, it was interesting. Uh, he figured, you know what? We've got enough people who can do run-throughs now. We need to do new things on the channel. The channel has to evolve or die. He's a big evolve or die kind of guy. And so I mean, you saw this month the first ever episode of Grant's Greatest Games. Uh, and I loved it. Oh my God, he did such a fantastic job. You'll, you'll see him going every month now. So, I mean, there's definitely potential, but my friend's number or the channel manager's considerations, have you been doing it for at least a year? Do you have a body of work to show that you're um, you're going to stick with it? And do you have that kind of spontaneous 
quality where you can just off the top of your head be engaging to an audience. So that's those are really the main um, factors. Okay. Next up, we have Lance. Lance says, I am really interested in how you talk about publishers needing to talk about what is special about their games. I'm definitely curious about your thought process on the subject. Would you be willing to go through a few random games and give the description you would use if you were a publisher? Preferably older games. I haven't played a ton of new games in the past few years. Uh, feel free to just mention random games or use the top five or ten on BoardGameGeek. That is an interesting thought exercise, Lance. Um... And you're right, it is certainly something that I rant about quite a bit, especially if you're a backer of the show um, in my Rado Rambles uh, top tens that I do for exclusives. Oh man, I get pretty ranty sometimes. I normally try to be a, a cool and level-headed person in my public videos, but... <laughs> oh man, my ramble I just recorded last week, which was me talking about the Dice Tower Awards, the Golden Geek Awards, and the Spiel des Jahres, and how I disagreed so strongly with everything, got very ranty. But anyway... You know, there's been some examples um, today, right? I was just talking about Agricola. Actually, I didn't. Let's talk about Agricola. We mentioned that earlier. What makes Agricola special is not the worker placement, is not the you know the theme of subsistence medieval farmers trying to survive. What makes Agricola special is the minor improvements and the um, the. Uh, Occupation cards. Now, I'm not actually going to try to write ad copy for them. But if I were to, what I would want to focus on, what makes Agricola special and different from everything else on the market, is how, at the beginning of the game, you have to make a detailed plan that will um, carry you through from start to finish. Agricola is the ultimate strategic worker placement game. Yes, there are still tactical choices that come up from start to finish where, oh, I really want to go to the midwife. You blocked me from it. I need to get that extra kid right now or whatever it might be. I can't believe you took that read. You waited too long. You know, All that stuff is standard worker placement 101 business. It's fine. It's well implemented. But what's so special is at the beginning of the game, you find yourself with a hand of 14 cards. And you have to decide, right, with these 14 cards, how am I going to plan the growth of a generation of my farmers? Well, um, at the end, at the beginning of the game, what am I going to train them in? By the end of the game, what will, how will I be improving their life? You have to make this plan from the beginning, and to succeed against a good player, you have to find a way to make that plan come to fruition in spite of all the obstacles your opponents throw at you. That's what's special about Agricola. No other game does this in quite the same way. Terraforming Mars kind of does a similar thing, but not as much as Agricola. So that's an example. Um... What else? Hold on a second. Let me go to my own um, list. Uh, Ranked.rado.com. Um, right. And let me bring it up. What would be a- another one? Let's see. What, what makes Gloomhaven special? I mean, uh, Gloomhaven, there's a lot of things that makes it special, but if I had to pick one thing that I would focus on more than anything else that makes it stand out from the huge variety of other fantasy cooperative dungeon crawls, it is the fact that you are mercenaries in this game. And that means that even though you're working collaboratively, even though you have to cooperate to win, everybody has their own agenda. And again, this is not. And this is something that me, that creates a level of unpredictability and tension that most co-op games have to give you with a lot of random event cards and dice rolls and stuff like that. 
Gloomhaven is so special because the unpredictability of outcomes comes from the human beings that play with you. That would be one of the things I really want to play up. There's no other game on the market that truly makes you feel mercenary. Even when you're working with your teammates, you've still got your own secret objectives you have to pursue. Now, there's a lot of things. I could focus on that. I could focus on the hand management system and all that. But, I mean, that, that's an example off the top of my head. Twa. What makes Twa so special? The fact that it is a dice drafting game where I can use my own dice or I can buy your dice from you. And we both benefit from that. You end up, um, because I end up giving you resources, money, literally, that you could then use to buy other dice. Maybe you weren't happy with the dice you have. Maybe you wanted to buy a die from somebody else. You didn't have the money. I buy something from you. That level of interdependency and what it means uh, is just um, throughout and that's what I would focus on. Another way that comes to the foreign twa is at the beginning of every round, there is an event card drawn and they build up over time. And these are disasters befalling the city of Twa. And players, even though we're playing a competitive game, have to collaborate to remove these things. Um, everybody has the opportunity to throw some of their resources to solve the problems of the city. And the game kind of forces you to work with your opponents. And so that is something that's woven throughout that makes Twa really special, really unique. Um, not like any other, hey, let's just push cubes around on a board and, and harvest resources to get victory points. Lots of games do that. Twa does something special and different. Uh, let's see, you said, what is, uh, if I go to, uh, um, where, 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 where do I find that? No, I, I need to go to. Uh, browse games, all board games. What are the top five games on Board Game Geek? Um, ba, ba, ba. Um, that's interesting. What makes Pandemic so special? I mean, obviously, putting aside the fact that Pandemic uh, is special in large part because it was in the right place at the right time. Uh, you know, it was a co-op game that came along right when the industry had no idea how badly they wanted a co-op game. It wasn't the first one, but it was the first huge breakthrough hit. But putting that aside, what would I want to highlight about Pandemic? Because there's a lot of co-op games out there, and there's a lot of games that copy the core structure of Pandemic. So why is Pandemic better than all of them? I'll tell you why. It has to do with the way it handles the event deck. Again, all games have an event. Now, this is going to be hard to articulate in a cool, sexy way. But in Pandemic, um, over time, event cards get drawn that make more viruses spread all over the board and you have to fight the viruses. That's not special. Pretty much almost every co-op game has some variation on that. But every once in a while in Pandemic, you take all those cards you've seen you sh that have been played, you shuffle them up, and then you put them back on top of the event deck. And now you've got to play through those same cards again, knowing what's coming, but not knowing what order it's coming. And if you are a high-level Pandemic player, that is where that is how you can win at high difficulty levels. By playing the odds, knowing that Chicago is going to get hit. But there's only a one in four chance it's going to get hit. So do we push our luck? Pandemic is a lot of things. It's a multi-use card game. Nobody talks about that. It's multi-use card. That's really special. A lot of games don't do that. But more anything else, you're always, can we afford to let Chicago wait? Or is it, should, does somebody need to get there and solve that problem now? That's what elevates it ab above uh, its contemporaries. At least for me, anyway. That's the kind of stuff... Again, I, that, I'm not saying that's easy, 
But that's the kind of stuff that I look for personally. Explain to me why you're different than every other co-op game, every other worker placement game, every other dudes on a map game. So there's a few examples, Lance. Hopefully, hopefully that helps. Okay, then Lance continued in a follow-up email. You can maybe tell I'm catching up on recent podcasts, uh, but I just finished listening to Crowd Sorcery. I know uh, you may be past getting giving uh, getting thoughts on the name, but I think you were right from the beginning. I think the crowdsource would work better. I could be totally wrong, but you seem like you may not be super comfortable with the name. Uh, there's also a thought that every segment doesn't have to have a special name. Just a few thoughts. I'm genuinely not trying to be negative. I love any content you do, no matter what it is called. By the way, um, my focus on crowd sorcery and doing crowd sorcery shows. That's that guy I mentioned earlier, the the uh, the channel guy. You should really be doing a uh, you know a a, a a crowdsourcing report show. Everybody wants to see that. Why are you not doing that? Like, okay, I'll give it a try. Um, so you can thank him for for that show as well. <laughs> I'm resistant to change. I'm an old dinosaur, but um, I, I've gotten used to it. I, I I like it. I always liked it. I always thought it was neat. I. I th- the main thing is, it so seems to demand having some kind of logo, some kind of artwork. Me wearing a, uh, you know, a, a wizard's hat or something like that. And that's just not really my vibe. One thing I did do, you know, there's, um, oh, what's it called? There's, uh, there's these AI art generating programs now that artists are looking at saying, oh my God, in a few years, there's no reason for artists because the program can now create art that's as good as anything an artist can do. Uh, Midjourney is one of them. I actually went on the Midjourney site on Discord and I actually tar- started trying to get it to generate some art for me for wizard playing a board game, wizard using a computer, Gandalf using a computer about board games just to see what it would come up with so that I could get some proper art for my crowd sorcery show. And I got some very beautiful art, but nothing that really was quite what I was looking for. And I felt quite embarrassed doing it, so I stopped. And yet, in spite of the fact that I was embarrassed, I went on ahead and announced that here. So, long story short, if there are any artists out there that would like to make a logo, uh, you know, it's kind of in keeping with my regular Rado Runs Through presentation that would have something to do with crowd sorcery. You know, I mean, heck, if even it's just um, the uh, Rado Runnins guy that turned into a wizard, that would be great. Um... I could, I'm sure I could have Jen do it, but Jen's got her own thing. I don't, I don't want to, you know, I, I do not want to abuse her kindness and her generosity. I want to abuse your kindness and generosity, random artists out there and graphic designers. Okay, let's see. Matthew just watched Grant's video. He's such a great add to the channel. I love his style and format, says Matthew. How did you go about adding him to your channel? I think we already answered that question. Uh, did you see his previous videos and think, I need to bring him on board? Or was he referred to you? Or did you put out a call for new contributors? Uh, was the process the same for your other contributors? You know what I think about it? No, no, no. I think I'm pretty sure I mentioned, hey, I love Grant. I, I've known Grant. Well, I haven't known Grant. I have done some online chats, video chats with Grant over the last few years. The biggest one was he and I played a game of Codenames um, on an amazing Twitch channel d- run by Tim Reel. Uh, I think it's like twitch uh, twitch.com slash Tim underscore R-I-E-L or something like that. You can probably find it if you just do a search for Codenames on Twitch. And you can find this episode that Grant and I were team captains. It was me and Shay versus Grant and a very funny female co- uh, stand-up comedian that Grant knew. And and we had a great time. So I've kind of online 
Chat, known Grant for a while. And I've been a subscriber to his channel, uh, Grant's Game Rex, and I thought it was fantastic. And I was, you know, we were talking about, well, who should bring on next? And I thought we should really consider Grant. I mean, he's a professional stand up comedian, and he's a really good one. I think he could kind of do this. And I was thinking he could come on and do run throughs. But my channel manager, getting back to that earlier question, said, yeah, he could. But let's see if we can have him do something else. And so that's... And he and Grant, I guess, brainstormed some different ideas. And Grant's greatest games, um, because I love alliteration, I won't deny it. Uh, it's my Marvel upbringing. Uh, thank you, Stan Lee, for instilling a love of alliteration in me. Uh, so Grant's greatest games came from that. Uh, so it was just... It was kind of organic. Do I have a target in mind for the number of contributors I want to have? No. But one thing that's very important to me is that I pay my contributors very well. So there is an upper limit to how many contributors I can afford to have, um, because because I, I you know I mean I, nothing makes me happier than the fact that Shay is literally making a living off of my channel plus his own channel. After you know the initial lockdown uh, ended, he didn't have to go back to part time bartending. Uh, because of the additional income he gets from me. And I hope that for everybody. I mean, Kim is a is a successful uh, English professor, so show, so Kimberly does not need... Uh, you know, she's just doing my channel for fun. Uh, Amy and Maggie, they've got... You know, they're uh, professionals too. They do not need the money. But I still want to pay everybody very, very, very well, such that that makes them stop thinking, maybe I should do this professionally, uh, because they're all fantastic. So that's a big uh, limiter, because Rado Runstrew still, um, you know, pays for me and Jen. Now, of course, I have gone through some very hard times recently that are that I've talked about in the last episode of the podcast. I won't relate or you know go over that now because I don't want to start crying on camera. But it does mean Jen and I have fewer financial obligations. We have more money on hand. And um, so that means hey, maybe that's more money for more contributors to the channel. Yes, that's kind of my first thought as to you know, um, you know, how can I turn that tragedy into something positive? Uh, so we'll see. We'll see as time goes on. <clears throat> but yeah, no hard limits. Again, this is all a very organic thing. As opportunities pop up, um, <clears throat> yeah, but we, we, we do not have any kind of formal process in place at all. <clears throat> how do sponsors and publishers feel about having contributors review, play their games instead of me personally doing it? Well, they choose it because here's the deal. Um, when a publisher contacts us about covering a game, you know, and mostly we're talking about a preview of a game that's on Kickstarter, right? That's what we're really talking about here. Um, we get the rules, and the rules get sent to me and Ruel and Amy, Maggie, and Ryan, and everybody. Everybody gets a copy of the rules, and my channel manager takes tallies the yes or no's. And it takes a few days for everybody to read the rules, because here's the deal. One thing I instill in everybody is... Please don't sign up for a game that you don't think you're going to enjoy. I don't want this channel to be a, game, a channel for ripping things apart. I want this channel to be a thing that is nothing but a celebration of games and how great they are. There are plenty of other places you can go to hear people rip um, developers a new one. I would. I was raised. If you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. Um, Shay ran into this literally the second game he ever said yes to. He had not internalized that lesson. I read the rules and said, yeah, I don't think this is going to be a very good game. But he said, I'll try it. And then he tried it, realized he did not like it at all, and realized how hard it was to film a positive, excited, upbeat run-through of a game that he personally didn't believe in. 
And that's when we reached out to the publisher and said, hey, we're sorry, we really made a mistake. Would you like us to send this um, game on to some other channel because we're not going to cover it because... You know, we try not to be mean, but we say, here's the things we don't like about it, et cetera, et cetera. And so Shay learned, right, double, triple read the rule book. Be sure you're going to enjoy this game. And I instill that in everybody, right? So that's the first step. Everybody says yes or no. Then my buddy, my channel manager, goes back to the publisher and said, well, here's, here's, the, here's the members of the channel who would sign up to cover your game. And here's the costs. And we charge more for me, quite frankly. And the only reason we charge more for me covering it is so that the publisher has a stronger incentive to go have somebody besides me covering it. Because I already cover enough as it is. I Did I mention earlier, I'm very old and tired. I am... Nothing makes me happier uh, than the idea of, again, trying to make other people become successes, helping them build their own channels. I keep telling Kimberly and Ryan and Shay and Ruel, anytime any of your videos are up, put links to your own channel on my videos. I want to be a gateway to your channels. I want your channels to succeed. Even if it means you eventually get to the point where... I mean, Shay has had to turn down stuff for my channel because his channel is so much bigger now. And he's like, okay, I really got to focus on my own channel. And that's great. I, I want that to happen. Um, so publishers decide, well, you know what? Hey, if you want me, you're going to have to pay more. And honestly, between you and me and the thousands of other people who are listening to this right now, here's the deal that publishers should recognize. And we try to explain this to them. At the end of the day, Kimberly's going to get almost as many views if she does the run through as I do. I mean, I literally just put up a run through for a game that I covered on Kickstarter and one that she covered. They both went live the same day. And after a couple of hours, I'm only like 15% more viewers than her. Um, and so it's, I, you know, and this is to try to reinforce the fact that if you get good at my style of run through, it doesn't matter whether it's me doing it because Kimberly does an amazing job of bringing humor and enthusiasm and excitement. Shay is a little cooler. He's a little bit more calm and collected, but I think certain people really respond to that. Um, you know, and uh, Amy and Maggie, the fact that it's the two of them, oh, they're fantastic. Uh, anyway, so I, I, I hope, I mean, I don't know. I have not taken a straw poll amongst publishers. There are plenty of publishers who say, who say, nope, we only want Rado to do it. And we try to say, well, it's going to cost you more. And Rado is booked. And I mean, and we've had people who will literally delay their launch so a month so that I can do it instead of somebody else so that they can pay more to have me do it. And in those cases, I feel like, oh, that's a failure. Have Kimberly do it. Have Ruel do it. You'll be happy with the results. It'll get just as many views. But, um, you know, uh, you, know, you may have noticed, uh, over the last six months or so, I've actually tried to change my opening, pat opening pattern. I don't say, hey, everybody, today Rotto runs through Blippity Blop. I say, hey, everybody, today on the Rotto Runs Through show, we're taking a look at Blippity Blop. I'm trying to repurpose the name Rotto to just uh, to separate it from me and make it more about a style of presentation. A Rotto run-through is not like any other playthrough you'll see on any channel. And it doesn't matter who does it. That's a long-term project that we're working on. And... I don't know if I've answered your question, Matthew, but there's some observations popped in my head based on the question. Okay, next up. I've mentioned in several podcasts that I'm more aware of colonialism themes and see them now as a turnoff. Full disclosure, I share your opinion. How about a game like Carnegie? The game celebrates his philanthropy, but many consider him to be um, one of the industrial age robber barons. While he may not be as notorious as some of his peers, his career includes instances of insider trading, war profiteering, destruction of personal and public property, anti-union violence, harsh working restrictions, monopolistic business practices. Regardless of your opinion on Carnegie specifically, what uh, would games about robber barons be a moral turnoff? Off to you. I will be honest, 
This is something I have kind of a blind spot for. I'm dimly aware. I've not done a ton of research into the history of Andrew Carnegie. I'm aware that his philanthropic works changed the world for the better. And that is not something to be dismissed out of hand. It's more than just putting his names on the wings of certain art museums and whatnot. I mean, uh, yo, I mean, you mentioned he, I don't know, I've never heard anybody say he uh, did war profiteering, but I do remember, if I recall correctly, he offered the Philippines in modern day parlance billions of dollars to ensure that they could buy their freedom from anti, and, and anti, you know, as I think it was in America trying to overtake the Philippines. If it wasn't America, it was somebody else. And he literally tried to give them the money to be able to maintain their autonomy and independence. That's a big freaking deal. I know, I mean, probably the biggest thing I've heard about, and when Shea first covered Carnegie for the channel, um, some people did mention, how do you feel about this? I mean, Carnegie's a scumbag. He's one of the great scumbags of history. And, you know, look at all this this union busting he did. And I looked into it. I actually read a bunch of articles about it, and historians do not agree on that at all. Apparently, he, uh, by that time all that had happened, he had completely given up running the day-to-day stuff. He wasn't in the country. Some guy was running it for him who was responsible for all that. And he and that guy literally fell out and they both died despising each other. And people say it's because Carnegie was so pissed at him for how he ran his business instead. We'll never know. According to Carnegie's notes, he had no idea that was... I think the guy's name is Frisk or something like that was doing it. And Frisk said to everybody, yeah, Carnegie's an idiot. He doesn't know what needs to be done. Good thing he's gone. So, honestly... I do not have enough information. I do, on an instinctual level, look at it that somebody who has done, who was willing to do so much to give away so much wealth for the betterment of humanity, that maybe, that maybe he wasn't perfect, but there was probably extra stuff going on there. And I will say, regarding the board game Carnegie, which I'm very excited to play, because apparently it's one of the best designs in years. It's from Javier George, one of my top ten designers of all time. I am disappointed that the developers did not take the time to really delve into that and bring that into the game. They really, like you said, focus on fairly benign industrialization, and then, oh, and then you convert that into philanthropy. Honestly, I wonder, should they have even put his name on the box? Was that worth it um, to bring you know, these open questions? I don't know. I, all I know is it's a complicated issue. I, and I can certainly say I do not want to play a game ah, about your final question about what Robert Barron's in general. I mean, every 18xx game is full to the brim of that, and it's all gone away. Every Martin Wallace train game. Heck, every train game, period. It in existence. Even Ticket to Ride. We are partaking in, um, you know, Robber Baron-style behavior. Should we eliminate Ticket to Ride from the common vernacular? On some level, I don't know, but I feel that there is a different burden on developers uh, to bring to the forefront compared to, um, you know, games that are all about direct colonization and subjugation and destruction of indigenous culture. Um, you know, and that, and that kind of stuff wears the evil on its sleeve more directly. I, but I think you make a good point that, you know what, maybe the game industry should be a little bit more forthright about what they're representing in a more traditional Euro as well. It's, 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 it's tough stuff. And I thank you for the question. Honestly, I don't have an answer. I'm sorry for that. 
And then we move on to Mike, who is a big fan of Free Radical. Sadly, Mike hasn't been able to get enough people together who are willing to play a four- or five-player game. Me either, Mike. It seems like more players makes it more fun and interesting game. I believe you're right, Mike. My questions are concerning the a expansion for Free Radicals. If a Free Radicals expansion is made, would I prefer additional factions for the five existing colors or additional colors? Oh, no choice about it. Just those factions. I don't think you need additional colors. I can understand. The only reason you need additional colors is so you could push the player count even higher. And that strikes me as such a big, challenging thing to do that I'm afraid the development would have to be focused solely on how do we make this game work at a higher player count now? Um, and like I said, it's already hard to get that higher play counting. A game where everybody is playing a completely unique game, unlike anybody else, having two more people around the table, that's just going to be harder to do. So no, I would be all about, hey, add more cool mini games into the five potential five player slots we already have. Continues Mike, would I want to expand it? Oh, I guess I answered to more than five players. Would I want to keep it at five? Um, yeah, I think I just answered that. And then what would be the top five new mechanisms I'd like to see in mini games? Oh my gosh. What does it have? It has a worker placement. It has a deck building. It has an adventure. It has kind of an engine building. Oh, I mean, I haven't played the game since February. Because, of course, and between then and now, I've played another 50 games. So, oh, I'm trying to remember. What? I see. I, I, you know what, Mike? I'd be happy with anything. All five. I, we ultimately did play. Oh, pick up and deliver. Pick up and deliver is the other type that they had. Right, 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 right. You know, here's the deal. I, I played the pickup and deliver option. It was pretty good. So, with that in mind, I say, give us a roll and move. Give us a roll and move. Um, it, done in the same way that Stefan Feld did roll and move in Merlin, where you've got three dice and you're rolling them and moving your piece independently. And um, there's a lot of really cool stuff you could do there. So, why not? Uh, yo, I mean, talk about making it uh, something really very entry level, and yet could still have surprising depth. Um, I was gonna—I mean, I, oh, they also had poly, the domino and Tetris pieces, didn't they? They already had both of those. They had a Moncala. Jeez, they did so much in the Free Radicals is so amazing. Why, why, why don't more people beat a, beat feet to get it? I'll tell you why. Because Tom Bassel trashed it, and he was in completely wrong. Oh my God, he was so wrong. Um, but anyways, neither here nor there. Uh, I have stuff to say. I, I, I share your enthusiasm, Mike, for Free Radicals, but uh, that, that's a tough one for me to come up off the top of my head. Um, hopefully I gave you one really weird suggestion. All right. From um, Nemec. Can I talk a bit about the story and gameplay changes and the details in the big box expansions for Marvel Champions? Nemec would love to hear what makes them so great. Nemec has tried to get into the game, but can't enjoy it. I love the comics, and I find everything very thematic and engaging, but in the end, I feel like all I'm doing is spending several turns trying to get build a small engine, and all it does is add plus one to this or plus one to that. I just find the actions I'm doing quite boring. Maybe I haven't played the right heroes yet, uh, but I would love to hear you describe what's cool about the big blocks expansions. Honestly... If the if the base game didn't capture you, Nemnik, I don't think anything else will. Um, you know, Red Skull or the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy or Sinister Motives, the Spider-Man one or the Mad Titan Thanos one. I mean, all the every single thing that's come out for it since just continues to do what that base box did so well, and. I mean, if at the I mean, at the end of the day, you have I would say accurately described the experience of the game. 
and it just didn't work for you. And I don't, I can't imagine anything's going to change that. Uh, no, I'm you honestly, Nemec, I, I strongly recommend you go on board game geek, create a board game geek account. If you haven't already done it, go to the Marvel champions and post this question there. I guarantee you, you will literally, within a day, have a three-page long thread of people who are maybe more um, articulate or able able to identify things that the expansions do that the core game doesn't. Because to me, I don't see it. The core game continues to build. It's always coming up with cool and interesting offshoots, but at its heart, it's still doing the same basic stuff, and it's the stuff you say you don't like. So I just don't know if Marvel Champions is right for you. Maybe, maybe you should try Legendary or uh, Unmatched or un- I don't know how many there are. There's like at least three or four different. Or, or, or you know, um, what's it? The uh, the stuff from Cool Mini or not? Uh, Marvel United. Maybe maybe that one's going to work better for you. I mean, at the end of the day, the thing that yeah, to compare Marvel Champions to Marvel United, everything in Marvel Champions is abstracted away, and at the end of the day, it is a game. It is an exercise in resource hand management and math. It really, really is. It's got a lot of thematic stuff layered on top of it, but that's the core of what it is. And it's also abstract. In Marvel United, you actually see your heroes and you see the villains moving around and you physically move from place to place. So I, I would suspect maybe that would work better for you. Maybe you would find that more engaging. And maybe that, and you know, not all games are for everybody. And that's okay. And I guarantee you, if you're ready to get rid of it, you will not have a hard time finding a home for it. Just go on eBay, say you're willing to sell it, and you'll just instantly have people bidding to get it for you. And I say eBay, sadly, because for folks who don't know, Board Game Geek is, is shutting down the Board Game Geek marketplace at the end of the month, which breaks my heart, but I totally understand why they're doing it. Um, heck, you, know, you still have a few weeks. Get it on the Board Game Geek marketplace now before it shuts down in a couple of weeks. And, um, and I guarantee you, you will find a happier home for it, and then you can take that money and invest it in Marvel United. I think maybe that is just a, a better place to start. Uh, you know, that, that fits what you're looking for. Alrighty. Nelson starts. Number one, what are some modern or recent engine building games that have a healthy amount of positive player interaction? I think examples would be like uh, Roll for the Galaxy, but what are some other examples? That's a good question. Um, uh, Roll for the Galaxy is a good one. Uh, let's see here. Let's see here. And, okay, so first of all, we're talking about competitive games. Oh, I just mentioned Twa. Right? It's weird. I don't understand why people think Twa is a cutthroat, nasty game. When to me, it's like, hey, we all, every round, we get a bunch of dice based on where we've deployed our workers. They, they come in different colors to represent different things. We all roll our dice, we put them in front of us, and then we start taking turns, at, you know, drafting dice and activating them. And if you want my dice, pay me money. I view that as a positive thing. I, to me, it's I because you have to understand, I don't own these dice. These are dice that I can use for free. All the other ones I have to pay money to use. You've got dice in front of you you can use for free, and you have to pay the money for it. So, I mean, the fact that you know money is exchanging hands, and I'm giving you the potential to do something you may not have been able to do yourself, I think that's great. By the same token, Seven Wonders, um, you know, that is beautiful. Uh, and it's why it drives me so insane that Seven Wonders Duel threw away the collaborative working together nature of Seven Wonders and converted it into a no, I'm literally going to try to steal from you. Why did they do that? That was not necessary. Um, so, you know, those are certainly some examples. Um, let's see. Let's go to my rankedatrado.com. Ranked.rado.com. And let's talk about some mo. Okay. 
What uh, What else? Okay, again, ignoring... Um, right, so I just mentioned Twa, and you mentioned Roll for the Galaxy, an excellent one. Um, oh, and staying away from uh, cooperative games, which I have a lot of cooperative games, as you might imagine. Let's see here. Um, boy, you're right. It's not that common, is it? It really, really isn't. And that is kind of sad. You got games where I create opportunities for... You know what? Okay, this... Uh, let me... Let me um. Let me look at games I've covered recently. Let me just look. In the first six months of this year, have we got any? So I'm just going to go to the Rado Gameplay Run-Through playlist and look at the games I've covered uh, this year and see if any have come out. All right. And again, not talking about cooperative games. Right, right, right. Oh, Come Together, which isn't out yet, but I've already done a run-through for it. It'll be coming out at all. Is is a game where we're all making um, festivals. It's a worker placement game. But you place your workers out there. They don't do their work until somebody takes the time to activate the workers. And if I send a worker to a given spot, you might want to go to that same spot as well because you're thinking, hey, pretty soon I might activate that spot, and that means you get an activation for free. It's wonderful. It's so good. I love it to pieces. Come Together is a great example of positive interaction between players. Uh, and what, the industry needs more of that unless, oh, look, I play a card and I steal your thing or I destroy your thing. That is so tired and played out. Sky Mines, uh, formerly Mombasa, is a game. It's a competitive game, but um, it's a game where players kind of collude because we, we aren't the actual companies. We invest in companies. So if I see that you're investing in companies, I might want to piggyback off that as well. And by me investing in the same company, so I'll get some revenue out of it. I'm helping the agenda you were trying to do. I feel like I'm kind of stretching on that. Maybe we can do it. Oh my gosh. Isle of Trains All Aboard is a wonderful example. This is a train game. Another train game, which uh, we know what that means. We talked about that earlier. And I cannot seem to go back. I do not want to actually look at a video of... of oh, for heaven's sakes. No! Don't do that! Okay. Uh, all of Trud's All Aboard is... It's an engine building game where we're building a train engine and um, putting train cars and trying to load stuff and deliver stuff. But without... So it's like a route delivery, pick up and deliver, without the picking up, without the route building. And the beautiful thing about it is, is I build up my train eventually. It's multi-use cards, and I want to put my own cards uh, into my train so I can deliver those goods and get all kinds of rewards. The thing is, when if I load my own train, I get no benefits. If I take the resources I've got and load your train, you then get stuff that you can deliver for great benefits, and I get bonuses. And so the game literally bribes me to help you. It's beautiful. It's so simple, and it works so nicely. I, I mean, I think the, the Kickstarter for it is long gone, but this is a game that came out 10 years ago. I covered it when it originally did. So, I mean, I, I, you know, that's a great example. But you know what? Okay, I could keep going. There are definitely other examples. But the reality is, you know what? I just remembered. I talked about this at great length. Do a search for Rado non-violent interaction in games. I know that sounds... Provocative, but all I meant was let I me mean, make sure that's right. Is that right? If I if I Google search Rado nonviolent interaction, will you, will that get it to you? Yes, it does. The actual name of the video is Top Ten Nonviolent Gameplay Interaction Mechanisms. Um, I did that back in 2015, hoping that it would open the industry's eyes up to, you don't have to just keep, you, you can have us interact without having to destroy each other. And it's more fun. Human beings want to work together. In this world we live in, we need that more now than ever. And there's all these ways you can do it. 
So I made a whole video about it. You can go check that out for some more ideas. Okay. Uh, coming back to Nelson. Recent games that have unique or novel mechanisms that simulate time passing. Other than corrosion, I got this question from listening. Oh, you want a list of that? Oh, that's hard. There are so few, which is why I'm so excited every time I see one. It's a game where time itself is a resource that you manipulate. Of course, time is something that you manipulate in every game because every game has a beginning, middle, and end. Um, but uh, Zulk in the Mayan Calendar, of course, is the granddaddy of this. You put a worker on a board, and it's a board that rotates, and over time, the longer you leave them to work, the more they will produce for you when you eventually recover them. I love that. And Corrosion is the most recent example of taking that idea and doing cool, wonderful things with it. And there are a handful of things that have done that over the years. Um, and uh, you know what? My suggestion, if you're looking for more of them, because I'm not going to come up with the top of my head, go to faq.rado.com, entry number six. That will point you to a board game geek uh, forum where you can ask questions like this and you will get deluged with responses. Great examples um, that I, I think will help more because off the top of my head... It's, it's a rare thing, and it shouldn't be quite so rare, but it is. Uh, your third question was, what games do my nieces and nephews like playing with you and Jen? What are the next few games you'd want to show them next time you guys get together or they haven't played? Well, they're both hard... I mean, they're... What are they? 13 and 14 now, I think. For a while, they were hardcore into Magic the Gathering, and I would really like to play some Marvel Champions with them to show them why um, you know, playing a really rich and complex and... Um, uh, you know, inscrutably uh, mathy, uh, you know, adventure game working together instead of against each other is superior uh, because they just don't believe me when I when I try to explain them. You know what? It's not the greatest thing of all time. So that is definitely high on my list. But I don't know if they care about the superheroes uh, or Shadowrun Crossfire. I would love to play that with them too. But they're down to play anything for the most part. We've uh, played just lighter. I mean, when when we do find ourselves playing with them, that's like, hey, look, I can play some party games that you know I've got. So that tends to happen. But there, I mean, like, most most interesting recent game we played with them was actually Dinosaur Island Rar and Right, which is one of the heaviest, euroiest roll and rights there is. And I didn't know that when I when we sat down to play. I knew it was heavier than your... I knew it was heavier and had more going on because it's not only a roll and ride, it's a dice drafting game, it's a worker placement game, it's a big game, it's um, it's got a lot of stuff going on. But I figured, hey, if you can handle Magic Gathering, you can handle this. And they handled it, but our first game of it was like three hours long. Um, and But they had never seen anything like it. Um, you know, and I remembered thinking back to the first time I played Pandemic and then the first time I played Agricola and I'd never seen any, I never imagined things like these could exist. So, I, I mean, I think that's like a springboard. What, what else did we play? We played Bunny Kingdom. We played Dixity type games with them. I think they're up for anything. But honestly, if I could pick one, you know, hey, in part from what we were talking about earlier, I would love to play some Marvel Champions with them because I think they would really dig it. Yeah. Okay, and now, oh my gosh, we're almost done, folks. We have just one more question submitter, but it's Top. And if you were here last month, you may remember I had to put Top on hold. Now, that's okay. Top is always a year behind on catching up with the podcast, but I feel like Top, okay, we're going to get through it this month, buddy. Let's do this thing. Top says, question one, do I know why my audience listens to my podcast? Do I know how and when they listen? 
I've started out listening, obviously because of the board games, but I've been trying to cut back on board games in the last few years, so honestly, I'm mainly uh, listening to check in with you guys. So the switch to pure Q&A format's been great for me. This is an old... Uh, again, he's he's way in the past. Uh, I found it interesting to listen to your philosophical and political views and a lot of the discussions uh, you have uh, as you work your way through issues. It's definitely made me think a lot more about serious topics we've been discussing. Yes, I recently finished your emphasis, inf, infamous episodes 69 and 70. You guys have all my love and support, and I applaud you always trying to be better people. Yes, thank you for that. That was... Very, very tough, and I still live with that every day. I mean, I still, literally, a week doesn't go by that I don't beat myself up about episode 69. And I still, every every week, wonder... I, I, I have big-time imposter syndrome these days because I feel like I don't deserve the goodwill of the audience after episode 69, quite frankly, no matter how hard I try, and I'll just continue to try to make up for that. But thank you for your support, Top. Um, I don't have a good question. I, th- I know what you're really asking is, hey, what percentage of people listen to the podcast for the game stuff versus the um, personal stuff? Um, the podcast system I use, Anchor.fm, which I absolutely love. It makes it so easy. One thing I guess I could complain about is it does not have a lot in the way of metrics, right? It does not tell me, hey, when do people start listening? When do people stop listening? Now, it can't because people, I mean, all it does, podcasts are weird. Um, if you use your podcast app, you just download an MP3 and you play it locally. The, the, the service that sent that to you, they have no idea what you're going to do. Now, I, you know, a few years ago, I did start putting them on YouTube, and I've never looked at this. Um, but I wonder... I know YouTube does have a lot more detail. Now, a lot less people watch the podcast than listen to it. Like, by, like a factor of five or something like that. It's like five times the number of people listen rather than watch. But if I were to go into the analytics of an episode... Um, let's see. Which I am now doing... I know there's... Okay. Okay. Here, uh, okay. I'm I'm looking at one right now. Is there anything secretive about this? All right. No. Let me go on ahead. For sorry for people listening. I apologize. Let me put this on screen. Um. Do do do. Boop. So this is a podcast. I don't remember which episode it was. I think it's a more recent one. And honestly, this looks like it has... I mean, you can see, actually. Let me zoom it in a little bit. You can see the fall-off pattern is pretty much in keeping with every kind of video I do. Even though this is almost two hours long, um, you know, you know, and pretty much any YouTube channel showing you these analytics would show the same thing. The vast majority of people who check out a video are out within the first 30 seconds. Um, in this case, it tells me 91% of my viewers are still watching at around the 30-second mark, which is above typical. That's interesting. Um, I guess a lot of people, you know, what do I do? I, 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 I show you the game within the first five seconds, right? And within the first 30 seconds, a sizable portion of people say, nope, this is not a game for me. Just looking at it, I'm walking away. But more people continue going. And it's interesting. There is a big jump. So it looks like there is a jump at three minutes in, which I bet you is people skipping my little intro. And because on YouTube, you can skip around wherever you want and going right to the gameplay. And then the gameplay drops off. And then there is another jump, uh, you, know, uh, you know, right, of, let's see, it looks like it. Yeah, jumps from, you know, by the end of the gameplay section, about 12% of the people who originally started listening stuck around. But then... At the moment that the personal stuff comes in, there's a jump of 16%. And then that starts falling off too. So, there you go. Uh, That's as close as I've got. And 
It is no uh, any way, shape, or form. So it goes. It shows there is some percentage, but it, I'd say based on that, the majority of people are not here for the personal stuff with me and Jen. They're still here for the game stuff, at least according to YouTube. Now, maybe YouTube listeners are fundamentally different beasts than podcast listeners. That I don't know. But that that was some info for you, Tom. Okay. Uh, top then followed up with another email. I just got done listening to the April 2021 episode and somebody mentioned that they help themselves fall asleep by teaching the rules to a new board game to someone in their head. Yeah, I remember somebody saying that. That they pretend, okay, I'm going to teach how to play and that puts themselves to sleep. That reminded me of a nightmare I once had when I was trying to teach the rules of a board game. Oops, shoot. Uh, rules of a board game. I couldn't remember the rules and kept having to refer to the rule book. Uh, and I could see the excitement drain from other people's eyes in this dream. It sounds like you're really good at teaching games. I think I am. Uh, there are people who would probably disagree, but I think I'm very good. Have I ever had a terrible experience trying to teach a game? The only one I can think of is many, many years ago, back when Jan and I lived in Malta. And if you're the person who came, people would contact us all the time. Hey, we're on vacation in Malta. We love your show. Can we come out and visit and play a game? That happened all the time. Every couple of months, somebody would want to come. And a couple of times, people just showed up and said, hey, I figured out where you live from your videos. Uh, which is why, ever since we moved back to the States, Jen has been uh, strict, give no indication of where you are in your videos at all. Um, all you get to see, folks, is this room where literally the windows in this room have been blacked out so no sunlight comes in. Um, but anyway, that's not the hint there. Um, so uh, uh, people would come by all the time and we'd play games. And it was nice. There was one couple that came where the fella knew how to play the game too. And um, so I was trying to teach Jen and his spouse, I think it was just the four of us, and he kept interrupting. And... That was hard. That was hard. I mean, I'm not used to that. Pretty much 99.9% of all my teaching is to Jen. And I was just totally unprepared for that. I tried to work it into my pattern, but I've got, I mean, I've done this so long. And, you know, Jen and I, we can complete each other's sentences. We've been married for, since 1991. I'm not going to do the math right now. Um, And uh, so... It's, it's, it is interesting, you know, trying to modulate how I teach Jen versus teaching other people because I know I, you know, I can't make certain um, assumptions that I make when I'm teaching Jen something. But I think I still do pretty well. I mean, I've taught plenty of games at conventions, and I've never heard anybody um, on Reddit or something like afterwards say, yeah, I played a game with Rado. What an, ah, what an a-hole. He did a terrible job teaching. I've never seen that. Although, boy, there's a thread on Reddit right now that is just so full of Rado socks. I don't know why I punish myself and go look at that stuff, but I should really not do that. Anyway, that's not the hint there. Um, so anyway, this one fella, he was very... And I'm sure we've all seen this. The um, He was trying to help, and he was very enthusiastic, and obviously he had a different method for teaching than me. And to be fair, maybe he teaches his wife all the time, and the way I was teaching was fundamentally incompatible with the way he teaches. But that was a real challenge to get through. And Jen and I talked about it. Jen and I, we still talk about it years later. It was tough for both of us. But he was a nice guy. I don't blame him. You know, I mean, I'm sure he's used to being the guy who teaches. But anyway, do I dream about board games, Top Then asks. Anything interesting? Interestingly, yes. And it's sad news. What I will often dream about, and this happens a lot. This happens at least, at least once every couple of months. Maybe even more often. I will dream about designing a game. 
And I remember afterwards very clearly thinking, wow, this is amazing. Nobody has ever done anything like this. I know, because I have played 2,000 games over the last 10 years. And I've studied most of all the other ones. And nobody's ever done this before. And this is going to be absolutely amazing. And, um, and now, I, 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 at the time, I'm dreaming. I'm actually writing it down, and I'm making plans and all of that. And then I wake up, and I forget about it. And all I remember is that in the back of my mind thinking, oh my god, I, somewhere in this dome, in this cranium is are a dozen ideas for absolutely mind-bogglingly fresh, new, never-before-seen mechanisms or combinations of mechanisms that my conscious mind can't unlock. So that's what happens when I dream about board games. It's kind of a sore subject, quite frankly. <laughs> and, you know, who knows? Maybe they're not. Maybe I'm just convincing myself in my dream that nothing like it has ever been done before. But that is definitely the, that is the main source of dreaming about board games for me. I mean, I was a video game designer for 20 years. So sometimes it's kind of hard to turn off the design gene. But I guess I just do it all subconsciously now. Okay, uh, top then continues. I'm starting to catch up. I'm only a year and a half behind. I made it to January. Oh, yeah, the, it looks like these are a little bit out of order. You keep mentioning Marvel Champions in your podcast, so I finally sat down to watch some videos, yours included, and bought the base game. It's great! I'm thinking of expansions. I just watched your final thoughts on the Red Skull expansion. You spent most of it worrying about thematic justifications. For example, you brought up the first two missions occur in the space of an hour in the Adirondacks. Would it make sense for Peter Parker to fly back to New York to get a bowl of soup with Aunt May in the middle of all that? I don't have a problem with this because I bet you can thematically justify anything. For your example, would you consider the damage to mean not just physical punishment, but mental anguish? And so maybe Aunt May is simply Peter Parker thinking of Aunt May. Um, or maybe she cooked him a nice meal beforehand and now it's giving a boost. The card doesn't actually say you have to physically visit her apartment as you describe. And then you have another example about um, She-Hulk and stuff like that. Um, you know, and how it could work. Anyway, what do I think of that kind of thematic justification? It's pretty easy to bend over backwards and thematically justify anything. Here's the deal. You're right. Of course. It's totally fine. Why? Why should I have to do that? Why, when what came in the original Marvel Champions box didn't require me to ignore what the card actually says and does and come up with my own little fly fantasy, which believe me, I'm perfectly capable of doing, but... Um, they didn't have to do that. The um, uh, be because I mean, there was actually after that video that you you're talking about, somewhere in the among the fifty thousand threads about about Marvel Champions on Board Game Geek, there's a thread where somebody was inspired by my video and said, "Hey, here's how they could have designed the um, the those Adirondacks missions." such that the gameplay doesn't have to change at all, and yet it could be a thing that's happening over the space of weeks or even months in instead of minutes or hours. It didn't change anything about gameplay, and then suddenly it just worked. And it didn't require players to have to jump through hoops. And almost without exception, that is doable. And in cases where it's not, like probably the, the, the place where it would be most impossible to justify something like that would be the Kang missions, where you literally travel through time and jump from one place to another. And yet you can still be Steve Rogers hanging out in your apartment in the middle of that. Now, I'm not saying... Here's what I would suggest. 
Yes, you're right, Top. I could do all the work. Or, since I paid money for this product, how about the developers do the work instead, since I'm paying them to do it? Um, and since they did it in the original box. The three missions that come in the original box, and many more besides, work just fine within the conceits that the game itself creates and doesn't require me to throw all that away and have to make up my own headcanon. And there's no reason for it. And now, so I come back to Kang, because I don't think you could do that. But here's where things get really brilliant. If the designers really cared about maintaining the verisimilitude of their simulation, here's what they would have done. They would have said, special setup rule when you're playing the Kang mission, any alter ego card, remove it from your player deck and replace it with these special cards that you get that um, you know that function the same. Because, hey, when you literally go back to ancient Egypt, oh, you can't hang out at your apartment anymore. You can't um, call your dad if you're Kamala Khan for help. But instead, you can do these other things. See, now I would say that is taking a restriction that the developers have put on themselves, and instead of ignoring it, which is what they do, they could actually make the game even deeper and more interesting and richer as a result. Now, I can't do that because I'm not going to make a bunch of cards to do that. You know, or, they, I mean, they don't have to make new cards. They could say, hey, when you're playing Kang the Conqueror and you travel back in time, there's a standing rule that um, every alter ego card, it says, ignore the text on the card and instead produce double the resources that card would normally produce, right? And because and that be, and um, and in the actual text description for traveling through time, um, you know, Say in the in the flavor text how the the you know, the heroes are so demoralized they wonder if they'll ever get back home that in the middle of fights they find themselves thinking of their friends their loved ones the life they left behind and they draw strength from that. Don't make me do the work. Put it in the freaking box. It's not that hard. And the only reason it's not happening is because the developers decided, even though this was a cornerstone that made me fall in love with this game and made me rank it one of my top 10 games of all time, they very quickly disregarded it. The thing that makes the game more special than anything else. And you're right, Top. I could do the work, but I say no. It makes me angry that they want to throw away what makes the game special and that I have to do the extra heavy lifting. It makes no sense. You're right. I, with a little creativity, I could do it. With a little creativity, the developers could do it. And that would be 10,000 times better. So that's where I stand. And I apologize. I got a bit ranty there. Alrighty. Um, number two, does this convince you that not every scenario has to, no, uh, has to span weeks or months? No, of course not. I just gave you an example of how they could do it that would be 10 times cooler than what they currently do. And they're not doing it. Now, that's not true. They have done it. There have been a couple of times. I want to say, was it the Taskmaster mission where you found yourself in an alternate dimension where there were certain things that you couldn't do anymore because you wouldn't have access to it, right? So they've done it a couple of times. But it's, to me, it's, it's, it's lazy, it's just throwing away what makes their game so cool. Um, anyway, though. Finally, you didn't really emphasize how much the gameplay echoes the other LCGs. I'm curious with Arkham Horror, or, or familiar with Arkham Horror, as this has so many parallels to that. It also fixes my single biggest complaint about Arkham Horror LCG, the Chaos Token Draw, which I feel is a form of rolled resolve. Well, they didn't. Repla they just replaced it with um, the event deck, right? I mean, you, you still there's just as much randomness, 
Maybe it's a little bit less random, but it's still pretty random. I'm glad they eliminated it with Marvel Champions. I wish they could have done the same with Arkham Horror, which I feel is 80% luck. I don't know. I mean, to me, the Chaos Cup feels very, very much the same as every time an enemy is going to scheme or attack, draw a card and see what happens. And sometimes nothing happens. Sometimes it quadruples their damage. Sometimes it makes you throw your entire hand away. You never know what's going to happen. To me, if anything, I would say it's even more unpredictable. Because at least you know what's in the cup. You have no idea what Kang the Conqueror is going to throw at you. So I don't know that I agree with you, Top, um, with uh, the randomness. All right, uh, number three. What are my feelings comparing this to other LCGs? Well, I have played Marvel Champions. Sorry, folks. Top really wanted to go deep into Marvel Champions. This is the big Marvel Champions episode of the podcast. Um, But I'm very passionate about this game, so I don't mind talking about it. And this is the end. We're almost done, and then we'll get to the uh, personal stuff. I promise. All righty. Oh, was it? Oh, uh... I played the Arkham Horror one. I played Lord of the Rings. Honestly, Marvel Champions feels much more akin to Lord of the Rings. Because Lord of the Rings really abstracts a lot of what's happening in the same way Marvel Champions does. In fact, there's a a new mission, the uh, Hela mission in Mad Titan, where uh, it pretty much recreates the gameplay of Lord of the Rings, the card game, brilliantly. I absolutely love it. Um, See, So the thing is, why do I like Marvel? Aside from the fact that I love Marvel Champions characters, I love I mean, I've, ever since I was a little kid. I've always loved Marvel comics, and I, you know, I was an avid reader well into my um, late forties, my entire life. It, I mean, Secret Wars three killed Marvel comics for me when they pulled their Crisis on Infinite Earths, and that's like, oh, you finally, after my entire life, given me an off ramp because hey, you completely threw away the universe. I know they didn't, but as far as I'm concerned, they did, and so that's when I stopped reading. But my whole life, I've read made my Marvel. I've read comics, uh, so obviously I love it for that. But putting all that aside, I think more than anything else, what really made Marvel special is the unique element of what makes a superhero special. At least the Marvel pantheon of superheroes. The dual identity, their, their, their costume persona, and their real life. And Marvel has always excelled when bringing those things together. And that's what makes Marvel Champions so special. And none of the other games have it. And it just feels like as time goes on, it's, it feels like they're actually trying to design heroes that actively don't even want you to switch to Alter Ego mode. Where you're like, I just want to stay in Hero as much as possible. When, if anything, they should be going the opposite direction. A lot of people complain about Hulk, that he's too weak, and that they need to make Hulk stronger. I say no. Make Banner stronger. Make Banner something that, you know, because Bruce Banner does not want to become the Hulk. Bruce Banner hates becoming the Hulk. He you know, the, he should be designed that, oh, I become the Hulk for a very short period of time, and then I go back to Banner, and Banner should be much more powerful, so that I want to spend, if not most of my time, a much greater percentage of my time as Banner instead of Hulk. And then that's true to the comics, and it makes him more unique, and again, it's delivering more on the dual nature of these heroes, which is what makes the game so special. Which, uh, another one, that's what I, if I were pitching uh, Marvel Champions, I would, what, what's special? The fact that this is the only hero game that um, get, focuses on their personal lives in addition to their heroic lives. Alrighty. That cares about Peter Parker as much as it cares about Spider-Man. Okay, uh, Top continues. I know you usually like, uh, when you play solo, you dislike controlling more than one character. When you played uh, this game solo, uh, do you play... No, I always play Marvel Champions single-handed. I've played it double-handed a few times. It's too much. It's too much for my simple brain. I just can't handle it. So I, I play it sing- I mean, I, I play it all the time uh, solo. Uh, just as a single hero. 
In your Red Skull video, you said Marvel Champions was in your current top 20, but you afterwards checked uh, ranked out Ryle.com. It appears it's plummeted to 240. Do I have this correct? What caused it to plummet? Um... We literally have come full circle back to the first question, asking about how I rank things. If a game fundamentally changes as time goes on, I change my ranking to match. And Marvel Champions has fundamentally changed as more content has come out. And this is what I've just been ranting about. As the developers get farther and farther and farther away, what made their their beautiful baby so special, and they just throw it out... It has, it has consistently dropped and dropped and dropped in the ratings for me. Because I fundamentally... I still like the game. But it's almost to the point where I like it more for its mechanism than just the fact that, oh, it's Marvel Heroes. But I don't love it. It doesn't get under my skin the way it used to because they continue to throw away what makes it special. Or as you say, and as you say, Top, I could do the work myself, but I say, screw that. It's their job to do it. They should stick close to it and st- stick with what they set out to do um, instead of just getting closer and closer to basically Lord of the Rings with Marvel superheroes, which is what they're doing. Uh, because in Lord of the Rings, you don't switch to alter ego, uh, you know, and alter ego doesn't, you know, anyway. All righty. Um, number six. I know you really love the Marvel theme. How would your ranking of this game change if you had a Mediterranean Euro theme, like many of your favorite games, if it had some random thing like Shadowrun Crossfire if it became basically themeless? That's pretty much where its ranking is now. If it's um, you know, it, it's uh, it's ranking. Uh, it is now ranked pretty much on the quality of its mechanisms and not the quality of its thematic gameplay anymore, which is why it's fallen to wherever you said it is on the list. Where is it right now? Now you got me curious. If I go to games.rado.com and uh, that comes up, and I do a search for Mar or Control F. Control F, Marvel Champions. It is my number 249 at the moment. That's fine. I, I rank it an 8.3. It's still an 8 out of 10. All 8s are pretty much within, you know, I mean, it, to me, an 8.3 is is indistinguishable from an 8.7. They're all really great games. I still think it's a really great game, but it's not literally one of the greatest games of all time because they have thrown away what truly makes the game special, in my opinion. So... My, I don't think my rating would change much at all if they had uh, put a Shadowrun Crossfire, or if I mean, and that'd be really interesting. Honestly, it probably maybe would climb a little bit if they turned it into some kind of generic Euro business simulation. Because honestly, I want to see how they do that, and that, not for nothing, would be kind of special. Applying that kind of of you know epic combat to um to economic simulation. In a, in a trading in the Mediterranean, I want that game. Heck, for all I know, I've already dreamed about that game and I forgot about the dream. Who knows? Okay. And oh my goodness, you're still here, but we're almost done. Hey there. These questions also relate to Marvel Champions. As I wrote last month, I'm somewhat over a year behind on your podcast. How many podcasts you kept mentioning? How, all right, all right. Anyway, last month I mentioned looking at your game rankings, essay, all right. I now have a couple questions. I think you mentioned over time in general your rankings are pretty stable, except that um, games... Oh, this is getting back to normal stuff, or not Marvel Champions. Folks, you waited long enough. We have some non-Marvel Champions content. Hooray! <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, all non-Marvel Champions. Hopefully all that was interesting, even if it was just like, oh, well, that's an interesting perspective from, from a design and a creation point of view, even if you don't care about the game, hopefully. Hopefully. I don't know. I, uh, what, what would you say? I think... 
You mentioned over time that in general your rankings are pretty stable, except that games sometimes slowly rise because you tend to like them more and more as you play them. That is true. I have said that. Uh, can you think of other games that have fallen as much as Marvel Champions in your rankings? Uh, were they due to hated expansions also? I think uh, you mentioned a couple times uh, games have greatly suffered because you corrected your understanding of the rules and corrected rules made the games worse. That has happened. I couldn't tell you which ones. Um, but, I mean, it gets back to... I mean, probably Marvel Champions is the biggest fall. And uh, the other really big ones would be Seven Wonders... Uh, because they fundamentally changed the rules for the worse. Carpe Diem, because they fundamentally changed the rules for the worse. And to a lesser extent, Castles of Tuscany, another Stefan Feld game from Ravensburger, where they fundamentally changed the rules for the worst. And in both those cases, he would never say it publicly, but I got the real impression they kind of did it against Stefan Feld's wishes. Because Stefan Feld rarely posts publicly, but in both those cases, for Carpe Diem and uh, Castles of Tuscany, he posted, here's why the game it is, is the way it is, and I like it. And then Ravensburger just, you know, responded to the mass of people saying, we don't like it, and they changed it. And then Steffenfeld never said anything else. So you tell me. I'm, I'm sure Steffenfeld probably said, okay, yeah, fine, change it, whatever. But, I mean, those, I think, Marvel Champions, because they're just throwing potential away, and Carpe Diem, and <laughs> Castle of Tuscany, because, and Seven Wonders, because they fundamentally changed the rules uh, and made the games worse, in my opinion. Others would certainly disagree. All right. As a thought experiment, suppose you were to eliminate uh, expansions from Marvel Champions. Out of the current expansions, what combination of expansions would give you the highest ranking on your list? And, oh, we're back to Marvel Champions, folks. And what would the revised rankings be? Expansions include campaigns, intro... Um, <clears throat> it would certainly be possible that my ranking would stay at where it is. If the only heroes that had come out would be... I don't know, off the top of my head. Kamala Khan is amazing because the game so focuses on her personal life more than any other character. That's why she is my favorite character. She has more alter ego cards than anyone else. And any car, any character, like Hawkeye is the worst. Hawkeye has no alter ego cards at all, period. Quicksilver drove me nuts. Quicksilver has one alter ego card that is a mysterious shadowy organization that he deals with in the comics, I guess. I don't know anything about it. I don't really follow Quicksilver that much. And instead, they didn't put... His freaking daughter, who is a superhero. Why isn't his daughter in there as a hero or as a heroic ally and as an alter ego? I mean, a big part of him is that he is a single dad, or at least he was for a while after he got divorced and all that stuff. Bring that stuff in. How can you not think that that wouldn't make the game ten times cooler? I don't know. Some people think it's stupid, but... Uh, to me, that stuff is really cool and exciting. Um, so there's a handful of heroes that still do it right. There's a handful of modules that still do it right, like the aforementioned Hella. So if if they just focused on all that stuff, the game would still be in my top 20 of all time. But I, I can't make a list of what they all would be uh, because that would take a long time. And we've already talked way too long about Marvel Champions top. You're testing the audience's patience, but you've got one last one. Suppose one of my top 10 games got a terrible expansion, one that I despise. Pick any one you want. Pandemic, Dominion, whatever. Would that cause you to drop the ranking down to 240? Um, what if the game got 10 terrible expansions? I know you have a rule about this, uh, but would you choose to simply ignore these expansions or keep... Boy, top. Okay, here's the deal. Um, that's a good question. That's a good question. Marvel Champions is a living card game. It is a fundamentally different value proposition the contract that is made between player and publisher for a living card game 
or a collectible card game for that matter, has a fundamentally different set of expectations. And um, those expectations uh, mean that to me it feels very appropriate that I rank a game based on the full wealth of the experience. Because Marvel Champions is meant to be expanded, is meant to mix and match. If you never buy another thing from Marvel... I would not have rated Marvel Champions quite so high if, when the first game came out, they said, oh, by the way, this is it. We're never going to release anything. You get five heroes, three villains, and whatever it is, three additional um, submissions you can throw in. That's it. That's all there will ever be for this game. Then it would never have made my top ten in the first place because Marvel Champion, being in my top ten games of all time, was... An absolutely brilliant core mechanism, which still keeps it in my um, top 200 games of all time, or my my 8 out of 10s, which is still not nothing. Don't forget, I've played over 2,000 games. 240 is pretty good. All right, so... Um so, but what brought in my top 10 was that great gameplay that still keeps it in 8 out of 10. That, um, that, that Marvel, which of course, I, it's a personal predilection for me. Um, and the promise of just how meaningful and impactful it is uh, or, you know, for a character to switch back and forth. Um, and the promise that they're going to give me more of that. And they did. The first few things they released, you, they, they stuck to it. They stuck the landing. The um, Wrecking Crew. That is a, oh, the prisoners are, are, have taken over the prison. That could be a standoff that lasts for days or weeks. It makes perfect sense. And every once in a while, you make a sortie in and you rescue some people and you come back out. That makes sense. They kept doing it until Red Skull. And when Red Skull came out, it became obvious to me that, oh, they don't care. Maybe it was just even dumb luck that up till now, they kind of sort of cared a little bit. Um, so... Uh, that is why I judge Marvel Champions on the sum totality of it. I would judge Magic the Gathering on the sum totality of Magic the Gathering. I would not judge it based off of one starter pack. Because Magic the Gathering is not a game to be played as just one value pack. Now, on the flip side, Pandemic is a complete game in the box. Agricola is a complete game in the box. So I do not believe the existence of a really crappy expansion brings down the core game because the core game stands alone. That is not the case for Marvel Champions. Uh, that's not the case for Dominion. I, a Dominion um, requires more content. Marvel Champions requires more content. Magic the Gathering requires more content. Uh, that, is, that is what you sign up for when you get into these games. And that's why I judge them on that metric. Um, and I wouldn't judge Agricola on that metric. And then the other ones we talked about, those are because the, the developers, the publishers, literally, retroactively made the game worse in the core rules. Phew! Okay, folks, that was a lot. Uh, making up for a shorter one last month, but we're not quite done yet, folks. So hang on, everybody. We'll be right back, and Jen will be here for a game question or two as well. Okay, everybody, Jen is here. At least a picture of her is here. Hello. And there's a little hand, and here's oh. a big old mug of hot tea. What flavor is this tea? Uh, it's hazelnut. Hazelnut tea, folks. That's a new one. <clears throat> or is it? Uh, I've had it for a while, but I don't drink it very much. All right, very exciting. Mm. I don't smell it at all. Give it a sniffy sniff. And let me give it a sniff. Oh. It's too bad it never tastes that good. Always it's smells fantastic. It. It's going to taste like dirty water. <laughs> yep. Tastes like uh, dirty water, slightly sweetened. 
with some cream. <laughs> Let's have some proper water now. Okay. Mm. Gonna have water. Might as well just have the water. Okay. Anyway, Daniel had a couple of game questions, so we're not getting to the personal stuff yet, folks. we still got some gaming going. Uh, Daniel Honeypie wonders, what would it take for you to play a game that you don't like thematically? And he uses the example of games with firearms. Mm. Would you be okay playing said game by not using those questionable elements? For example, only using characters with bows and arrows. Yes. Okay. I I just don't want to have to use the objectionable item. So you don't mind if I use the objectionable item? If I'm over here with uh, with a machine gun or whatever, I mean, okay, let's talk about different. I mean, obviously, he used the one for guns. Yeah. Do you have a problem using, uh, you know, a modern day assault rifle in a gun fighting zombies? I guess maybe not so much zombies. But you still wouldn't want to do it. Yeah. Just the, the, the physical act of holding a real-world gun. We've talked about this in the past. You have no problem with ray guns or mm. crossbows, but just modern day. And really, I don't, do you have so much of a problem with pistols? Or is it mostly assault rifles? Or is it pistols, too? Anything that just... Uh, what about an Old West uh, American you know game with six-shooter revolver type things? Um, We've never really no. dug deep into this. I've just always said, oh, Jen doesn't like it? Okay, fine. No problem. We'll just skip them. But. I guess I I strongly object to modern day mass execution. Opportunities. Machines. Yeah. Okay. Um, I guess I feel like... You find it distasteful. Back in the day, if yeah. you had to kill somebody and you stabbed them, you saw the whites <laughs> of their eyes and you <laughs> felt the remorse and you, you know, carried a bit of their soul with you for the rest of their life. But mm-hmm. um, So if somehow that was a more... I guess, immediate and necessary killing because you had to do it for whatever the reason was. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I feel that modern artillery is so far removed from... And I'm not going to... I mean, I'm not a, a veteran, so I don't... I'm sure that they have... I mean, I'm sure they have a Oh, yeah, yeah. Trauma. There's... I, I've seen studies that a... A like the majority of veterans in live fire action literally purposely miss. Yeah. They when they're given the opportunity, it's not uncommon that they will okay, I will shoot, but I really don't want to kill that person on that hill over there. Yeah. Um Yeah. Yeah. So But even still But even still oh, just the the, the, the distance shootings and everything. Oh of course, of course I mean, yeah. that is just you are so far removed from actually, you know, the act of taking somebody's life that it, I think it becomes so much easier. Yeah. Um, so that's where it really comes really down re- to. Object to that. I mean, yes. not that you don't object in principle to taking anyone's life period under yes. any circumstances. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's, there's a sliding scale and there's just, when things, you know, I mean, you also wouldn't want to be put in a charge of a game where you're dropping bombs or, uh, you know, but for, for the same reason, I yes. would assume. Yeah. Um, but, you just don't want to be uh, to your to the question. You just don't want to be put in that situation yourself. You don't mind if I'm over here doing it. Well, I'm, if, if we're in a competitive game, then I'm obviously going to be at the mm-hmm. bad end of that stick. Mm-hmm. So I do. <laughs> well, if it's a cooperative, it way, if it's a cooperative game. But yeah, I I I would just I don't want it for myself, and I like it not to be aimed at me as well. Right. But, yeah. Yeah. But in a cooperative situation, I, I, I mean, you're. I mean, I, I'm. I'd still be surprised if you said you're totally fine with that. Yeah, sure, that's fine. I'll just uh, I'll play the sneaky spy, and you can play the Rambo with the uh, AR-15. 
I mean, I would think you still wouldn't particularly care for that. No, I don't particularly care for that. So that's, I mean, so I, I thought, okay, I think that's going beyond your image of, oh, no, it's just the fact that I don't want to pull the trigger myself. You don't want to be around them. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I hadn't really thought to this level before. I guess I just have innate distaste of it all. Yeah. I mean, you haven't thought about it because you genuinely don't want to. Thanks, Daniel. Uh, <laughs> um, all right. Uh, yeah, but continuing along those same lines, thanks, Daniel. Uh, would you find it morally questionable for someone to hide the unwanted thematic element and not tell the person who dislikes that because that person would never touch the game um, if the liar knew that there were uh, those elements were there, but you would love the game otherwise? For example, if I showed you... Uh, the aforementioned uh, hypothetical game, but I literally just removed the firearms-based characters. So if I said, um, hey, honey, I think... I mean, because, okay, we just established that you know, on, on your, your immediate gut response was, well, I just don't want to be the one pulling the trigger. But then when we really sat down with it, like, okay, you don't want to be around me when I'm pulling the trigger either. <laughs> so if we took all the run-and-gun characters out and just left the sneaky ninjas in... Mm. I would feel more... Fine with it. Right, but would I have uh, committed a morally questionable act by making you complicit in the enjoyment of a game that you object to for conscientious reasons? I think that's really Daniel's mm. underlying question. I mean, obviously, I did mislead you, and that's morally questionable just on the face of it. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's an, a lie of an omission rather than, you know, an outright lie, I suppose. Yeah. Well, as since you're a game designer, <clears throat> yeah. have been for <clears throat> many years. Uh, retired, former, recovering game designer. <laughs> yeah, um, I think I might give you a pass on that, in that you just designed <laughs> the game to be better fit for us. Oh, I see. <laughs> I'm exercising editorial control. Yeah, all right, that's an interesting point. Okay. All right, folks, that's it. Now we are done with all the gamey gamerson, and we do have some personal stuff. So if you would like to hear about the non-Rotto runs through parts of our lives, the non-game parts of our lives, hang on. We'll be right back. If you don't, thanks for listening. And for the last time, I say to you, please send your questions to questions at Rotto.com. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye. Bye. Still here? Well, then hang on. All right, folks, we are opening up the personal vaults and answering all the questions that have nothing to do with games. Although, I don't know, sometimes I screw up and I accidentally put game-related questions. Sometimes I put non-game-related questions. I, I make goofs, and there are no Klingon subtitles to fix things. But let's get to it. Honey Pie, Daniel is back. Oh. He had some non-game questions as well. Have we been watching Star Trek Strange New Worlds? Is that the one for kids with the... No, that is Star Trek... I can't even remember the name of that one. Star Trek Strange New Worlds is the one with the Adventures of Pike and oh. Spock and number one yeah. and... Number two. Number no, one. No, number yeah. one, yes. Number Sorry. one. Una. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, we have been watching mm-hmm. that. All right. Well, you've answered the question. Have we been watching it? Yes. <laughs> I believe Daniel has an unspoken follow-up. What did you think? Without getting into spoilers. I, there are parts of it I really, really like, and I can't get into it without spoilers. How am I supposed to address that? Really? Oh, okay. Okay. Well, then tell you what, um, folks, uh, starting last episode, I introduced a new spoiler section of the show, which will happen at the end after everything else. So <laughs> we will circle back around, Daniel. Um, so for people who would like some spoiler talk about Star Trek Strange New Worlds. But long story short, you like some elements, you don't like some elements. Yeah. Can you elaborate that at all without spoiling? 
If not, then folks, you'll have to come to the spoiler um, section. I, I don't know. The part that I really want to talk about I, is this definitely a spoiler. I have so. no idea what it is she wants to talk about. I'm curious as well. So I'll see you there, folks, at the end of the show. Oh, I can uh, Daisy. What's that? Daisy. Oh, and Jen's going to let Daisy in. Arr. All right, number two. Did you watch Killing Eve? Jen certainly did not. She would have no interest in that whatsoever. I did. I actually liked it quite a bit. I have to. I watched the first two seasons, and when the third season came around... Um, you know, I've got it on my to-watch queue thing, and I just kind of never got around to it. I think maybe there was something else that was going on at the time. And it's it's on my list of things to circle back to. It's just there's way too much good TV now. Oh, and don't get me wrong, I mean, it's great. I really, really liked it. I like the interplay between the two main characters. Um, you know, the shades of gray that are within both that they bring out of each other. I, I think it's all really, really well done. The performances are great. Um, for folks who don't know, it's a uh, serialized uh, espionage procedural about a... Uh, I forget... Uh, but she's not... Right, it's uh, a, a British Secret Service or MI6 agent, uh, but who's really more of an analyst, uh, who is trying to take down a, a female terrorist. Or a mercenary, I should say. and um, But who was kind of obsessed with her. And they become kind of obsessed with each other. And, um, you know, and, and, and the series just keeps going down the rabbit hole as they become more entwined in each other's lives. And there's mercenary action espionage stuff, but it's really more about the relationship between these two central characters. And I think it's really cool. But like I said, I've only seen the first two seasons. And I have not gotten around to the third yet. Number three. What are our thoughts on Yang's forward party and third parties in general? Um, I, in third parties in general, I think are generally speaking a good idea because more voices, more choices are just implicitly good. And I understand the issue of the spoiler effect. Um, yeah, I, I, I remember um, Ralph Nader. I remember Jill Stein. Uh, I'm sure Republicans remember. Uh, uh, what's it? Uh, uh, charts guy who basically got Bill Clinton elected. Um, uh, yeah, the, Ross Perot. Ross Perot. Yeah. Uh, you know, because people forget, oh, it goes both ways. I don't know. It's, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that Bill Clinton would have won in, what was it, 92, if Ross Perot had not split the, uh, the conservative vote. Um, and, uh, yeah, which is why I think Yang's approach is entirely appropriate. The forward party is a one ticket party. Um, it opens its doors to everybody. Your only um, you know, a, a requirement is, are you for voter reform? Are you for ranked choice voting, open primaries, and um, you know, non-biased redistricting? Those are the three platforms, and um, that's all they're pushing for. And the reason they're pushing for those, and you know, Yang has put all of his, his UBI stuff, Medicare for All stuff, all the other stuff you want to pursue, he's put to the side because he has come to the conclusion, and if you'd like to know more, you can read his book which I have done, where he goes into great length why all these other more important, impactful things will never be achieved, or at best will be achieved in very limited and compromised way, like the, uh, the ACA or the, uh, the IRA. I mean, those are great steps forward, but they could have been a lot better, but um, we can never make the big strides we need to make as long as our system is so foobar. And um, so... That's what forward is for. That's why um, you know they've made it very, very clear they're not going to be spoilers in major elections. They're just trying to approach these things. It can be addressed from the grassroots grassroots up. You know they're going for local elections and uh, trying to push people who will push for electoral reform. And I think 
I think that's great. I don't agree with everything about everything they're doing, but I can't complain too much because so far the party has um, endorsed two Democrats and a Libertarian who, by the way, pulls votes away from Republicans. Now, so if anything, it's a uh, Republican spoiler because that's the other thing. The underlying issue that what Ford is trying to do is blunt the MAGA edge by, and you know, and a lot of left-leaning folks say, ah, they're evil because they're willing to engage and work with with never Trumpers. And me, I'm sorry. I'm old enough to think it's a good thing that you can walk across the aisle and work with people who are, are ideologically opposed to you and try to find common ground, which is always been Yang's number one thing from the get-go. It's why when he was in the presidential primaries um, and uh, you know all the straw polls, he pulled more Republican and right-leaning voters away from Trump than anybody else running. Um, because he was willing to talk to the other side and not demonize the other side. Uh, which is why, unfortunately, our side tended to demonize him and continues to do so to this day. So, that's uh, my thoughts about the forward party in a nutshell. Do you have any additional thoughts, Honey Pie? I just like him in general. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And where he's going. Yep. Also, he's an incredibly, relentlessly positive and upbeat voice, which, um, you know, he does not trash. Uh, uh, granted, he, I would say, got some very bad um, political consultant advice in the New York mayoral race. And, you know, he kind of lost his happy warrior status for a while. I admit, I was not crazy about that. He was kind of pushed up against the wall. He kind of had to do it. But still, I, I, I think it gave him a black eye that he wasn't constantly positive, constantly optimistic, constantly pushing a, a positive vision for the future, which is what he done in the presidential, which is what he does with Ford. Um, and so that's another reason I am drawn to him. He does not do attack ads. He actually tries to engage with the other side. When uh, you know, So anyway, yeah, that's kind of where I am and I continue to be. Uh, number four, Daniel's back for vaccines part two. Uh, because Daniel, this was last week, month. Uh, Daniel said, "What's the point of vaccines when they don't reduce um, the uh, transmission rate? Isn't it pointless? It's silly that we're doing this." Words to that effect. I might be uh, people can go back and watch the previous, but uh, Daniel had a well. Vaccines are meaningless because or are a waste of time or over. Uh, prescribed because they don't stop transmission. And my response was, Daniel, if you believe that, you're wrong. Um, Do more unbiased fact-checking because maybe Google's just not feeding you up what you want. Because the important thing is, at the end of the day, um, vaccines have repeatedly, demonstrably proven to have a huge impact on overall transmission. But there was a caveat, which I said uh, in the last episode. I said they, if nothing else, have they reduce transmission because they reduce the severity, they reduce the length, and they, they reduce the likelihood that somebody will get sick. And fewer sick people for less time means less transmission. Anyway, so with that in mind, Daniel wants to follow up and say, well, okay, I went out, I went to the British uh, Journal of Medicine, uh, and I fact-checked it, and I, fo- I followed both your links already, and I say, I doff my cap to you, Daniel. Well done. An excellent example of going to MediaBiasFactCheck.com and finding uh, something that was not overly partisan in one direction for another, and using that as a basis. Good job, Daniel. I, I, I encourage 
everyone to do the same. But anyway, you then continue. And I did look at the article. And the, at the end of the day, the article basically supported everything I just said. The article repeats over and over again. The one that you sent uh, says that, yes, it's important people take vaccines because you're less likely to contract COVID and you won't stay sick as long. Therefore, ipso facto, you will not transmit the disease. Uh, you're much less likely and it will stunt the growth, which is why everybody should do it. And the reason and the, the fact that there's still whatever it is, 60, 70 percent of the U.S. population or no, 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 it's more I'm, I'm going to the upside. It's more like 30 percent. Yeah. Um, they just refuse to do it. That's why it doesn't go away. But anyway, um, so you, you brought this out and you get, put a couple quotes from the article, which was a very good article. And here's the thing, Daniel, you really cherry pick those quotes. Most papers indicate vaccines holding up against admission, uh, admission to hospital mortality, uh, but not so much against transmission. Okay, the, the fact that people, um, that there are fewer people getting sick, which is the first half of that question means implicitly there's less transmission because there's fewer people being sick. It doesn't matter that if you get sick, it does not reduce the number of particles in your breath. If you don't breathe those particles as long and you're less likely to breathe them in the first place, you're saving lives. So get vaccinated. Another quote. Most studies show that if you got an infection after vaccination compared to those um, who got infection without a vaccine, you're pretty much shedding roughly the same amount of virus. Again, true. Which I acknowledged last month. And again, doesn't matter if you're less likely to get sick and you're less likely to spread them as long. It's just simple numbers. And then, but here's the interesting thing, Daniel, you end. And this is why, this is so important. Daniel can finish this. This is what I meant. They don't prevent transmission, unfortunately, but they do prevent serious illness. I didn't mention the prevention of serious illness last time because I thought it was a given. No, it's not a given, Daniel. The vast majority, and the thing is, people who lie and mislead um, basically to get more clicks and get more views from their rabid base so they can make Money. That is what is driving all anti-vax hysteria. We'll use the types of quotes that you just gave without any context and make someone believe, see, look, even the British Journal of Medicine says there's no reason to take vaccines because it doesn't reduce transmission. Completely ignoring what that article says over and over again, that it's important to get vaccinated because it reduces transmission because it cuts down on the, uh, the um, what had you say? It prevents the serious disease in the first place. It's not a given. And those types of quotes that you're cherry-picking, Daniel, are what are weaponized by anti-vax um, money grabbers. And that's what has led to an entire sizable portion. Or actually, it's not even... I was just going to say of a generation... This has been going on since vaccines were first invented back in what, in the late 1800s. There has always been vaccine deniers trying to twist the science, trying to hide and obfuscate to, uh, to get their own slice of the pie. To, you know, and, and, and for purely, and, and, and that's the problem, Daniel. That's why I got so upset last time. That's why I'm getting upset now. You say it's a given. It's not a given. The vast majority of anti-vaxxers would take your quote and see, look, British Journal says I shouldn't get vaccinated. When they very much say you should, because it does have a direct impact on transmissibility. Just not in this one particular semantic way. And that's what they do. They play word games. Mm. Do you have anything to add to all that, honey pie? 
I think you've summed it up. Okay. Um, all right. But it seems like, Daniel, for the most part, we have found agreement. That's great. But I think you, um, you're, it was a given. Trust me, man. It is not a given. People are lied to repeatedly their entire lives. And that's the problem. Um, because if you've been lied your whole life, you know, by by your friends, your loved ones, by your pastor, and by um, the, what you listen to every afternoon on the radio, there's no avoiding it. You, you, you. It, I mean, I'm sure I would believe the lies too if I'd grown up in that situation. It's very hard to break a lifetime of having literally the rug pulled over your eyes. Okay, Joe says. I know you supported Andrew Yang in the past. Has your position changed now that he's involved in the forward party? Well, obviously not uh, from the previous one. Uh, do you, like me, think he has lost his way in attempting to appear centrist? Um, no, I don't believe so. He is always... It's interesting. He has always had, by far, the most progressive policy platform that is achievable. It's progressive that could actually get done. As opposed to most progressive platforms, which are... We want everything and we'll never get any of it because... We just basically demonize the other side. Whereas Yang's was, okay, I've got a series of things that I think can get done that will have huge quality of life improvements for everybody that can be do done right now, and I will reach out to the other side rather than demonize the other side. So, yeah, long story short, I'm still a Yang fan. Um, but then Joe continues, am I aware of his recent waffling on Roe versus Wade? Does that impact my opinion? No, it doesn't, because that feeds back to the last thing. That was, I, I believe you're talking about his recent CNN interview with I remember, I forget, Acosta? Something like that, I forget the case. Which was, is interesting. It was literally a hit job. Because there was one, um, one, one tiny snippet of a 10-minute interview that's 30 seconds long that went viral. And that's all anybody watches. But it exploded on Twitter. Believe me, I had several people throw that in my face on Twitter. See, look, he's against a woman's right to choose. And no... If you watch the entire video, which the vast majority of people do not do, you will see that that was 10 minutes of Jim Acosta preventing him from being able to literally finish a sentence. And, um, and if you, and you know, so Yang never actually got to answer the question, but the question has been asked and answered many, many times. He's actually written full, you can go to the Ford blog, or maybe it's on his own personal blog, where he actually wrote after the RV Wade overturn came down, a very long article about how important it was for us to fight more than ever to ensure reproductive rights for women. He has never stopped believing in that, um, but, uh, people very cleverly snipped out the worst possible bit of one thing where he actually tried to keep... Uh, it's interesting, too. I, I should actually talk about that. But anyway, long story short, no, he didn't. And the fact, Joe, that you believe he did is what I was talking about a second ago with Daniel's questions. The media does not want to have Yang or anybody else um, do anything other than um, give them more clickbaity stuff. And Yang, who came up... It's interesting. Yang came onto that because for a while he was a contributor on CNN. And he thought, okay, this is going to be an opportunity for me to express my platform. And from the, the literally the first question the guy asked is, hey, wait a minute. You wrote a book called Forward and the name of your party is called Forward. This is all an elaborate ruse to sell books, isn't it? That's literally the first question. That is so laughably absurd on the face of it. And it just goes to show how they, uh, Jim Acosta had no interest in actually talking to Yang, which is why he never, for 10 minutes, let Yang actually finish a sentence. And Yang was just on the platform. Now, here's the deal. Yang went in assuming it was going to be a friendly interview because he'd been a CNN contributor for a year. 
Here's what I believe is actually going on. Yang, when he was running for president, was a genuine threat to the established hierarchy of the left-leaning uh, party because he had a lot of grassroots support from people like me and, more importantly, from people on the right. He had more support from people on the right than anybody else. And what I believed happened is MSNBC and CNN, who for months went out of their way to minimize him, they misspelled his name, they put pictures of other men named Andrew Yang in their articles, they would they did things like saying, oh, the next, uh, the, the next debate is coming up and there are no more people of color. As if Andrew Yang wasn't in the debate. He was still a person of color in the debate. Or they would, I mean, even that, they would just say, oh, it's just down to these four. And I'm literally the fifth person. I am also going to be there. And the reason they minimized him, I believe, is because if you go back to 2016, the media was incredibly complicit. Not just right-wing media, but all media across the board was complicit in Trump's victory because of all the clickbait they got out of Hillary's emails, uh, Hillary's speeches, stuff that they knew in their newsrooms were nothing, were waste of time, were just all ridiculous, trumped-up, meaningless charges. Benghazi, Benghazi, Benghazi. It was all solved. The Republicans did their best. They could not um, you know, even produce one scintilla of evidence. And this happened over and over and over again. And yet the media rapidly fed on that while ignoring Trump's peccadillos, let's say, to put yeah. it kindly. Uh, or, you know, or saying that somehow they were equivalent over and over again. And they made the electorate, the left-leaning electorate, believe a lie that somehow Hillary is just as bad as Trump. They're all the same. And, because, and they did it because it gave them great ratings. And it gave them lots of clicks. And they thought it didn't matter because they all believed, everybody, including Trump himself, believed that they, he, he could not win. And then he won. And then immediately, overnight, you had a come-to-Jesus moment amongst the uh, media elites realized, oh, crap, this is on us. We can't let this happen again. So fast forward to four years later, you've got a plucky upstart outsider named Andrew Yang, who looks like... Oh, he's a he's a business guy. He's an entrepreneur. He's talking about um, you know trying to fundamentally rewrite the system. Um, and now he's coming from the left. We can't make this mistake again. We must bury him. And that is, to me, what explains why um, he was so just literally... I mean, it, I mean, there, there's plenty of uh, articles and, and um, you know, summaries of just all the places where they so blatantly just lied to pretend he didn't exist and tried to undercut all the support, you know, the groundswell that he was building because they thought, oh, we screwed up with Trump. We can't let that happen again. And then what happens is the second he quits his campaign, he you know he resigns um, instantly overnight. All of those media are saying, "Oh, Andrew Yang, what a great job you did! You ran an incredible campaign. You really brought new ideas to the fore." Let's not forget he normalized the idea of UBI, which is a transformative thing. He is an incredibly important transformative public figure because UBI is not going to go away. He brought that initiative forward by decades, single-handedly. He is a freaking hero because of that. And now he's trying to do the same thing for election form, which is largely ignored. Who else is out there doing it? Barack 
Hussein Obama um, is the other person, you know, and uh, Eric Holder and all that, you know, that uh, election reform, because you can't hit these other big milestones. At best, you can get intermittent ones. Um, but anyway, so as soon as he drops out, they're like, oh, Andrew, that's great. Why don't you come on and uh, do some, um, you know, uh, some color commentary on the remainder of the race? We love you. You're great. Oh, we'll have you back and we'll talk all the time until he announces, hey, folks, I'm back and I'm trying to change the system again. And then instantly, boom, overnight, we need to destroy him. And honestly, I think he was just too naive to recognize what was happening. He thought, well, I have a really great relationship with CNN. They will actually talk to me. And the weird thing is, Andrew Yang is so immediately universally despised by the farther left, the progressive side of left-leaning political junkies. I believe, more than anything else, it's because when he came on the scene, he was a real threat for Bernie. Because in, a, in my experience, in my opinion, he was proposing things that actually had more of a demonstrable impact on people's lives than Bernie. He was hitting pretty much all the same ticks as Bernie, but doing it in a different way. And Bernie supporters are rabidly defensive of Bernie. And so, I mean, um, you know, Bernie Bros versus Yang Gang was a huge thing, and it never stopped. Um, so between the media deciding we need to destroy him because he is a threat on par with Trump. Because we can't afford to make that mistake again, which is absurd. And, um, you know, the farthest, farthest, uh, right. I mean, the fact, the number of times, sorry, honey pie, are you ready? All right. The number of times I have had people throw in my face, Yang wanted to dismantle the welfare state because of one interview he did with Dave Rubin, which one is willing to show he would go and talk to Dave Rubin and Ben Shapiro and Fox. You know who gets a lot of credit for that? Pete Buttigieg. You know who gets decried for that? Andrew Yang. But regardless, he would go on these. He would talk to them. He would pursue his ideas. They would then say something outrageous. And now I'm going to say, hmm, okay. I don't want to completely alienate your entire audience by saying you're an idiot, so I'm just going to change the subject. He did that once with Dave Rubin, because he was saying, UBI is great. Dave Rubin says, oh, that means we get rid of welfare. And um, Andrew said something like, well, I think it means less people will need welfare. And people said, oh, look, Andrew Yang agrees with Dave Rubin. He wants to destroy the welfare state. And the number of times in follow-up interviews when that was brought up, and he would say, I want to put more money into the welfare state because I understand that there could be a potential inflationary effect of UBI, and I don't want people who would rather stay on you know, the current programs they're on to be hurt by that. So let's put more money into these programs. And the number of times people have thrown, he wants to destroy the welfare state. And I say, well, actually, here's an interview where he said the exact opposite of what you're saying. And then instantly change the subject, move on to the next thing. I've had that happen to me. I literally had that happen to me earlier this week on Twitter. Um, And uh, because people are so invested in everything they can to demonize Yang because Yang has the, the gall to say, hey, you know what? The other side, there are... Oh, man. Oh, and somebody quoted, what was it? Uh, because Yang did a tweet said, you know what? There are good conservatives. There are good Republicans. And immediately got thrown in my face. Oh, so Yang is basically Trump saying there's good people on both sides. Thereby equating Yang to Trump and equating all conservatives and all Republicans to the people who marched on Charlottetown. That's absurd. That is willfully 
um, creating straw men that um, flies in the face of what Yang, Yang said, what he meant, and what he has always stood for. Why? Because he threatens their team by saying, hey, you know what? We can have a third team. A third team that isn't about tearing each other apart. Everybody is now so addicted to tearing each other apart they just can't stop. Oh my gosh, there was an amazing article I literally just read this morning from Jason Fargen. I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes on YouTube. Uh, it's uh, basically one where he tries to articulate how we're all just on this... We're, we, we become addicted, thanks to modern media and social media, to, okay, if you're not 100% with me, then you must be 100% against me. And that's not the way the real world works. But that's what's accelerating everything. And that's what Yang is actively fighting against. So, I'm sorry, what was the question? Do I still support Andrew Yang? Yes. See above. <laughs> um, sorry, everybody. Apologies. I know I said I wasn't going to be doing politics so much. But, uh, yeah, I'm still Yang Gang. Have uh, anything to add, Hank? All right, folks, I believe that's the end of the politics because Joseph would like to cleanse the palate a little bit. <laughs> Joseph has always joined in hearing um, us speak about our ever-growing chicken family. Oh, there's more now. Uh, yeah, I, I mentioned that in the oh, last episode okay. we did talk about. It. Um, so that's why I probably said ever-growing. Um, although, uh, ever-growing, although also ever-shrinking, we brought in three new and we lost two. Um, one passed on um, literally like two within two days of bringing those chicks in. Yeah, she just... Yeah, and it was completely out of the blue. Which one? Who was it? Red. Red. Um, you had seen one evening. Oh, Red's just kind of hanging off by herself. Yep. And up until then, you thought maybe Red wasn't laying as many eggs as normal, but otherwise she was totally fine. But yep. then one evening you saw her just kind of staying by herself, just hunched down. And uh, but you saw, oh, no, no, she she still made it into the hutch at night, so she's fine. And then the next day we found her dead in the hutch. Yeah. For no reason at all. And your best guess is old age. Uh, yeah. I mean, she was a production hen, so they, you know, lay a lot of eggs and yeah. die young, I guess. Yep. And then a couple weeks later, um, we had another uh, chicken who was really doing very poorly. Which one was that? Velda. Velda. Uh, she had gone broody, and one of the reasons you were looking to get chicks was maybe it helps cure her of her broodiness. It didn't stop. So she was literally spending 24 hours a day, seven days a week, sitting on um, the roost, starving herself. And she had been doing it for months. Yep. And we just couldn't make her stop. She had um, removed herself from the flock so much that every time Jen would actually bring her out to the flock and say, look, you have to come out and eat, the flock would all attack her because they thought she was an alien bird. Yep. And so, I mean, she had a miserable quality of life. She just could not let go of this obsessive need. Well, it's a hormonal thing. A hormonal thing. And so we thought, okay. And, and you know, she was the same age as Red. Yep. So we... Um, you know, we gave her the chop, literally. Um, and we, we were very sad about that, but, um, you know, I mean, she was, was having... an act of mercy. Yeah, she was having such a miserable existence. And she wasn't going to get any better. Yeah, we Molten tried and tried and tried. coming up, and yep. she was just going to get worse and worse. Yep, yep, yep. So, so yeah, well, we brought in three, but we lost two. Anyway, though, sorry. Uh, that is the... That's the cycle of life. Could you please explain... Sorry, folks, now that we just got all heavy for a second. Could you explain how chickens became such a big part of your life, honey pie? Oh... I uh, had a friend who had some, and she really enjoyed them. She said, you should get some. And I'm like, well. Who was that? That was somebody in England, right? Yeah, Fiona Vickers. Fiona Vickers, all right. And she had little silkies and stuff. So she wasn't in it for the eggs. She was in it for the companionship and the the interesting, just little creatures that they are and mm -hmm. enjoying them. Um, and I did. I got 
some, and then I got some more, and then I got some more. And that and was part I've... of the problem because I got them all, you know, a chicken from this farm and a couple chickens from this other farm and and then just threw them all in together in too far, far too small a, a uh, living situation because mm -hmm. I didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so unfortunately that was my first flock. They did not, they became very, uh, they pecked at each other a lot. They yeah. were cannibalistic. Yeah, it was really not very good. Yep. Um, but I've learned since then. Well, and it, it didn't last too terribly long because a fox got in and killed them all. Uh, no, that was the second flock. That was the second flock. Yes. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah, the All first right. flock we um, had Royston come over in. Yeah, because they just... They would not leave. They, each other they, they were literally in a perpetual state of civil war. Yeah. Effectively. Yeah. And um, I've gotten little chicken blinkers for them. To oh my gosh. Oh, oh, those things that you put on their nose, yeah. right? So they couldn't see anybody in front. They could only see in the side. So hopefully that would let them live with each other. Yep. And they just, they just could not. They would just constantly uh, it was, it was, other. It was very stressful. And um, thank you to Royston for helping us take care of the problem. They were also very delicious. We, yeah, because uh, they were quite young because... Yeah. We, uh, yeah, because, you know, so we, we, we got the most use out of them we could. Um, and then the second flock, we did much better. We were much smarter about it, but yeah. then they got wiped out by a fox, even though you had very high. Yeah. Uh, but I guess that fox must have climbed a tree and then jumped in or something. Actually, I saw it climbing up the chicken wire. It climbed up the chicken wire. Yep. Wow. And, and since then, we have now switched over to electrified fences, so that can't and happen again. That is working great. Yes. Um, I, di I didn't know that. Did it actually... I mean, because you, you had it. I mean, it was like five, six feet tall. I think it was two sets of four-foot chicken wire, so it was eight feet tall. And yet, wow. taller than, you know, us. I, I, did not, I did not know that that had been the case. Yeah. Wow. Um, so anyway, I, I think you're forgetting one thing. You're just saying, oh, a friend did it, and so I thought that was cool, so I did it too. Oh, you're talking about the whole existence... <laughs> Jen went through an word. existential crisis Thank you. after reading a book, which I know we've mentioned on the show before, and I cannot remember the name of the book. Can you remember it? It was a, a book about a, a, a fictional narrative about peak oil, peak oil suspense novel. Let me see if I can find it. Um, all right, reality of peak oil. No, oh, the, uh, let's see. It, and it was back. Was it Andreas? No, no, it wasn't a German book. It was early two thousands. Something like that. Uh, yeah. One second after? No, that looks like a familiar book cover. Well, okay. Can't find it at the top of our head. But anyway, there was a book. It looks like there's a bunch of books about the concept of peak oil. About how, what will happen to our world if the oil supply comes to an end. If we hit peak oil. And this was a book about, you know, there's a terrorist uh, coordinated strike that shut down the Straits of Hormuz and did a bunch of other stuff. And overnight, it was uh, set in England, uh, the entire country, uh, you know, because that's the case. The, the country of England has, what, less than a week's worth of supplies, probably. a week's worth of everything. Yeah, and, and so instantly overnight. Now, there's probably been less. Uh, found um, out during COVID. Uh, UK? Yeah, it's driving me nuts. UK suspense novel. And it was, you know, it, it's, it's, you know it's a pot boiler. Um, it, it was, it was a nice, Jen had me read it too. And I'm like, yeah, okay. I, I see why, why you find it scary, but, um, yeah, cannot find it. Um, anyway, though, neither here nor there. Um, so Jen read it and said, uh, yeah, we need to be prepared for this. And my thought was, what, you want to buy a gun? And Jen's like, no, 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 no. Don't want to do that. Um, I want to buy chickens. And so, so I don't, I mean, how much of it was, oh, you were already wanted to do, did, did, did reading this book just give you the excuse to do it? And you'd already wanted to do it anyway. I think it was definitely in my mind that we needed to have some self-sufficiency. Yes, because independent of that, you had already, look, we got to have a cellar full of 
of drinkable water yep. and a, you know a year's worth of canned goods. You already had done that yeah. anyway. Yeah. Well, maybe not a year, but yeah. but whatever. Yeah, yeah. Lot, we had a lot of tuna fish. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. I I don't know. I, I think it may it was just the perfect storm and it all worked out together. It's hard to say in this case what was the chicken and what was the egg. <laughs> oh, oh, look what yeah. I did there. But yeah, I mean those. So it's some combination of those two main influences. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Okay. And just also, you know, I'm I like to be self sufficient. Anyway, I'm kind of a get it done, do it myself kind of gal. Yep. Okay, so anyway. It's going to drive me nuts that I cannot find this book. Because he did a follow-up as well. Alex Scarrow, there oh, it is. Oh, there it is. All right, what, Alex Scarrow, what book did you... Ugh. All right, A-L-E-X-L-X-C-R-O-O, Peak Oil Novel. The man has the word scare in his name. Yeah, Last Light was the name of the book. In case anybody would like to read it and to basically scare their partners into getting a flock of chickens. Apparently <laughs> it worked for Jen. Maybe it'll work for you. The follow-up Afterlight, um, which basically was set, I don't know, 80 years later as mankind was trying to rebuild was not as good. Um, a little bit more speculative. But I mean, yeah, but, uh, yeah Last Light. It was a... Uh, it, it was it was a, it was a good, compelling, scary, thrilling thrill ride. There were like three different plot lines going on. I mean, it was a good book, right? Yeah, yeah. I guess. But it, it it literally changed our lives, uh, at least area contributed to. Joseph continues, assuming the animal came into your possession via purely ethical means. What exotic animal would you like to have as a pet? Ooh, exotic animal. Well, that's a, first of all, I don't. I think that's a loaded question because you have to say not only would it come into our lives via ethical means, but it would have to be able to live its life via ethical means too. There are probably ethical slow loris traders out there. Still, doesn't matter that people should not have slow loris as pets. Yeah. And I've, I've, I've read articles about that. You know, the the cute little marsupials that go, oh, give me a hug, give me a scratch. And, you know, there, for a few years ago, there were just tons of those. And there were so many articles that came out in the wave of those because so many people want to get a slow loris. And please don't do that. You are, you know, um, committing them to a life of misery and unnatural uh, life. Uh, what looks to you like, oh, I'm looking for a hug is not as simple as that. So, um I mean, I think we would have to couch this with, hey, not only did it, it was procured, but you would be able to provide a totally, I mean... Natural habitat. Exactly. Water. You have dogs and chickens. Things that over the past 10,000 years, or in the case of dogs, hundreds of thousands of years, have been domesticated to thrive in a... And, and have, we believe, fulfilling lives. I know not everybody does. Some people say, free your dogs, free your cats. But we think our dogs are happier living with us than they would be on their own. Yeah. Um, well, Daisy can't be outside this room if we're in here. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so, I mean, I think the question has to expand to say, not only would we get it ethically, but we could somehow care for it in a way that would be you know, 100% um, fulfilling of all their wild needs which is not necessarily something that makes sense but anyway let's let's assume that okay well i have an answer okay um i'm gonna go ahead not a slow loris i hope i'm gonna go ahead and take on the dodo you would love to have a dodo and i would love it and care for it and help it breed itself back into right so you existence. want to do so basically you want to uh, conduct genetic experiments no, not genetic experiment but i want to the dodo's extinct it. i know right so that means we'd I'm have just, to through through a Jurassic Park mosquitoes in amber, we'd have to bring the dodo back. 
Okay. So that you could raise a dodo. I guess. But I'd have lots of dodos and I would help them come back into the world. So you want to you want a dodo farm to repopulate the dodo world. Now, the question of course, ever since the dodo has been wiped out, yeah. those particular ecosystems have modified themselves with their absence. So, I mean, are you saying you want to re- reintroduce dodos to the wild after raising them? Or do you just want to have a dodo petting farm? I just felt that they were sweet, wonderful creatures mm-hmm. that were totally innocent and they really should have been protected. Yeah. And you would like to uh, make up for that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Uh, continuing. I remember hearing that you both have experienced scuba diving. Yes, I've been a scuba diver since I got my license at 12. Jen got her license at, it must have been 24, 23. Somewhere in there, Something yeah. like that. Would you mind sharing your most memorable diving experience? Uh, Joseph's would be Ooh. diving with thresher sharks in the Philippines. Wow. Ah. That's pretty cool. I don't want to do that. All right. Well, um, although I don't know what thresher sharks are, uh, just the whole sharks thing. Let's look at a picture of thresher sharks. Thresher. I would love to do a shark dive. You know, doing the whole chainmail thing. But Jen is very much opposed to that. You had it, thresher. Thresher shark. All righty. Let's go on ahead for folks who are watching. Let's put that picture on screen. As wait, whatever comes up. Thresher shark. There we go. Images. Well, that is a heck of a tail. Those look uh, like big, scary sharks. Oh, but look at that tail. Yeah. That is amazing. I've never even heard of these, but boy, that would be a very memorable dive, I would have to say. Are they um, man eaters? Uh, Well, I don't know that. How aggressive are thresher sharks? All right, there we go. There we go. Uh, Largely. They are considered harmless. It's shy, difficult to approach. Divers encounter them, uh, claim they did not act aggressively, but all, as always, take caution. Those look. Those are stunning creatures. Wow! Look at the face. Look at the face on that thing. I've never seen a uh, a face like that. Such an unhappy shark. <laughs> no, no, no. They always have that kind of downturn thing. But that almost looks like an alien from Star Trek in the face. Mm. Wow. Um. Anyway, though. So, Honey Pie, what? Uh, uh, independent of me, what would you say are most memorable? Let me think. Let me think for a second before you say, and then I will. I. I or, uh, uh, I have two candidates. I bet you you have the same two candidates. I will pick one of the the one. Uh, I, I'll just go for the one I think is probably the most memorable. Um, but Honey Pie, oh, what about you? What is your most memorable dive? You're gonna say the cenote, aren't you? No. Okay, then I'm gonna say the cenote. <laughs> <laughs> you just broke the whole thing. You were supposed to just independent. Regardless of what I said, would you have said the cenote dive? It was, I've got three, really, that are super... All right, well, but of the three, you would say cenote is your number one. Cenote is a, I don't know exactly what it is, it's a Spanish word for cave or something like that. Yeah. Uh, it was basically a cave dive we did... Um, in Mexico. In Mexico. Not too far from Cancun. Yeah, near Cancun. Um, Actually, it, though, when we went to, uh, yeah, the guy was able to say, you went to that one, that particular cenote. Remember the guy? Oh, yeah, because later on we had another dive someplace. Yeah. And he said, oh, you went to that cave? Yeah, that was a great cave or something like yeah. that, right? I, I used to work there, too. Yeah, maybe maybe I gave you the tour. Who knows? Yeah. But anyway, um, so cenote is your number one? Uh, that was pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, there's so many. We've had so many great dives. Mm-hmm. But, All right, what was your number two? Um, I'm going to think that lobster in Cozumel. Wow, I don't remember that at all. Okay, well, any of the Cozumel dives were fantastic. Yeah. So, um, but uh, there was one. You said you had three. And a very memorable lobster, a very memorable cave, and uh, the time when I freaked out underwater. And which was also in Cozumel. No, that was actually in um, Turkey or Cyprus. No, it was sorry. It, I'm 
can't think of it right now because now that I'm thinking, um, it'll come to me in a minute. Okay. Anyway, and I lost consciousness underwater. Remember, I had to go up, and the guy actually grabbed hold of my vest, and I think I lost consciousness, and my brain rebooted, and I was fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was very no for me, but you. But it shouldn't be because you're unconscious. Well, I think <laughs> it was only unconscious for a second or two, but. Yeah. Um, my, I would have said, no, I was at Cyprus, the hundred foot dive in murky water. Uh, yeah. Because we, um, we were in Cyprus. We had scheduled two dives because we were just shy. We'd done all the book work to upgrade from a regular diving to, I believe it's adventure diving. Is that the next level up? I don't remember something now what like it is. Open water adventure. Oh, open water adventure. Like I think is, you know, it's, it's the next level. It's like going from orange belt to brown belt, not quite black belt where you could be an instructor yourself, but you were one step removed and we had done all the work we had done. Uh, and we had to do two dives that were, if I recall correctly at a below 80 feet or below a hundred feet or something, something like, like that. that yeah. Something like that. So we went out and was, this is it where, I mean, we've worked hard for this for months and we go out and the first dive of the day, unfortunately there had been a massive thunderstorm that went through the previous night and they said, okay, well you people, want to do it we'll do it anyway and it was a it was a a let over 100 feet deep wreck dive and we had never gone that deep before so we were already a little bit nervous and when we got down there zero visibility like you know you couldn't see your hand two feet in front of your face kind of thing so we held on to each other yeah yeah, we, we held hands the entire time and it was tough it was dangerous it was reckless um and it was very memorable because i've never been so afraid in my life um, but, uh, honestly, 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 I wasn't that afraid. I was much more hyper aware because I, I've been diving since I was 12 years old. I got my, my, my mom and I got, uh, I really wanted to become a scuba diver. I thought that was great. My mom said, Hey, this is something my older son and I can do together. So, um, and this was back in the, uh, what is it? The early eighties. It was very unusual. You could not get I mean, nowadays, it's not a big deal for kids to get diver's licenses, as I understand it. But back then, my mom had to go to bat and say, look, he's really mature for his age. He can handle it. And I'll be with him every step of the way. And so Marin County Scuba Diving um, said, okay, fine, we'll train this kid. And I trained and I got my certificate. And for the next four or five years, or three or four years, while we still lived on a boat, because I must have been 12. I think that was the absolute longest you could do it. Um, I was... uh, Anybody in the marina who dropped their keys (laughs) or their wallet or whatever, and it went down to the bottom of a 15-foot completely, again, zero visibility, (laughs) murky mess in the sloughs of Sausalito and Vallejo, they knew, oh, there's a kid who will go down and find it for five bucks, ten bucks. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, I get to put on my scuba tank and then swim around in complete and total blackness and just reach around in the muck and the goo. Well, it kind of fell somewhere around here. And sometimes I'd find the keys and sometimes I couldn't. But I was always happy to uh, to uh, get the excuse. And uh, my uncle was a nuclear engineer at the Rancho Seco power plant. And uh, when we went to visit them for the weekend, you know, sometimes he had to work the weekends. And so uh, my Aunt Darlene and my brother and I would go up because uh, it was a it was kind of a local attraction to go uh, swim and sunbathe at the uh, cooling ponds, the ponds that were there for the coolant water. And um, every time we go, I mean, it was so it was like super crystal clear water. There was nothing to see, but I would just go out and scuba dive by myself for for hours at a time because I, I was only like 10 feet, 15 feet down at the most. Mm. And everything was crystal clear. I could always see the surface and my parents were fine with it. So 
I have been scuba diving uh, you know, I, as a young child. It was second nature to me. So honestly, I was not that scared a hundred feet. I mean, I was, I was a nervous. I was nervous for you because I knew you me. were terrified. Yeah. Um, but for me, it's like, well, this is just like back when I was 12. But um, yeah, I was nervous for you. And the, and the, thing, the, the, the thing that really sucks is we had to do two dives. They did the first dive. And then if I recall, didn't the boat take a vote as to whether to go down a second time? I think he just said no. Or did he just? I, I kind of remember there was like there was a there was. I mean, look, I can go. I don't mind. I'm not scared because I, I, I at least I'm comfortable enough because I've probably been diving longer than anybody here except for our guide. And I mean, I used to dive in pitch blackness all the time for hours at a time. I'm I'm totally cool with it. But I, it was decided no, we can't do it. And then we didn't scuba dive again for another four or five years. Yeah. And unfortunately, by the time we finally went back, we thought, oh, nope, you have to do the whole thing all over again. Yeah, you have to, like, you have a year or something. Yeah, yeah to, 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 have, to have done that second dive. So that was, for me, is the most memorable dive. But then some other dive stories. So did you have any more dive stories? What, I don't, what, what was the deal with the lobster? Oh, just... I, I interrupted you. I apologize. Oh, that's okay. I just remember being fascinated because we saw this huge lobster. It must have been uh, probably... Jen is indicating about three feet. Three feet with his, you know, his claws. And he was underneath a rock. Yeah. And I just planted my knees and sat there and watched it for a long time because it was doing its little lobster stuff. <laughs> and there was beautiful fish swimming by and everything. Yeah. And then eventually you're like, honey, we got to move on here. Over. Yes. Uh, what Jen is referring to is the fact that one of the things that has always made Jen very comfortable diving is the fact that... Well, after she got her scuba certificate, which happened because we were body surfing on our honeymoon or our two-year-late honeymoon in Hawaii, and she conked her head, got a mild concussion, and had to be stuck for our week in Hawaii. She had to spend three days in bed rest, and so because there was a a scuba shop down the road saying, "Hey, get your certificate in one day." <laughs> like, well, okay, I guess <laughs> I, I might as well do that. that but... Yeah, or it was something like that. Yeah. I mean, nowadays it's pretty much like that. I mean, yeah, but. But anyway, so Jen, basically she spent whatever it was, two days, three days, something like that, just stuck in bed, reading the manuals. Yeah. And by the time she was ready to go, uh, I remember it was so weird for me to see you the very first time in your life ever wearing a mask and a snorkel and freaking out at the idea of just putting your face in the water yeah. and breathing. You just literally couldn't do it. It gave you like, and, and we were just like, you know, in the shallow end of a beach and you're just like I can't do it because I can't make myself breathe when my face is underwater. Even though you had been skiing you were like an avid skier. So, I mean, so you were comfortable as an otter in water. But, yeah, you had just never snorkeled. So that was a very big, tough thing for you. And I think they were worried that, well, is she going to be able to do this? But you yep. screwed your courage to the sticking place and you <laughs> got over it. And we did some scuba diving. And then you became addicted for a while. Yeah. And because of the time, uh, not too long after that, we were living in Texas. So it was a very short flight to Cozumel. So we made several Cozumel trips and Cancun trips. And that's when we did the cenote dive and a bunch of drift diving and including this lobster yeah. dive. But during all of this, I mean, me, uh, scuba diving is zero. I, I've never been nervous, really nervous underwater. I take my regulator out of my mouth all the time. I oh. don't even think twice. It's, I'm just incredibly comfortable with it. Um, but Jen has always been a little nervous. So, um, we got a, I forget what it was, we, we got a thing that basically creates a plastic bubble around your mouth and you hold it in place with your teeth. And so you don't put the reg directly in your mouth. It's like the reg completely encloses your mouth, but it's a thing that's separate from your mask so that you can still, if you need to go to your backup reg, you don't have to take your mask off. Right. And, um, but because there's an air bubble around your mouth, you can talk and, um, it's, it's literally, but to activate, and it had, you know, the ultrasonic thing that you put under your skull, yeah. you know, like under subsonic. your mask, subsonic, you put 
foot under your mask strap. So to activate it, you have to make a sound. And because if you said, hey, honey pie, look at this, all she'll say is, honey pie, look at this, or, or pie, look at this, or something. Yeah. So we got into the habit of uh, pretending that we were uh, CB truckers saying, <laughs> we would just, <laughs> because that was a very easy thing to do. Your teeth like, kind of like, <laughs> hey, honey. We need to come over and... Uh, and so what that meant is, it was actually... It, it encouraged very bad habit with Jen because we've always gone on guided tours. She's never dove by herself ever or with just the two of us. That's never happened. You've always had a, a professional guide. I'm trying to think, is that true? Uh, yeah, even that one time you went without me uh, in the Puget yeah, Sound, you still guide. had a professional guide. I always have a guy. Yep, so a guy. Uh, <laughs> or actually, is there, have we ever had a female guide? Scuba dive. I don't think we ever have. Oh, no, come to think of it. Which is weird, and that is unfortunate. But anyway, um, so it engendered in Jen a very bad habit of, oh, I can lag behind because because she can hear me. I can talk to her underwater. And so it's always my job to keep an eye on the rest of the group and keep an eye on Jen. And, you know, there's like 100 feet uh, between us. And I'm like, honey, we got to go. I can't see them anymore. Let's keep moving. She's like, okay, but the lobster is the so lobstery. Lobster. Look at the lobster. So, I mean, how often are you going to sit and look at a lobster? Yeah. So, I mean, my case, I'm always off by myself, um, you know, just trying to be the tether holding Jen to the rest of the group. <laughs> Good. I yeah. appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we tried diving again recently within the last year, and um, we hadn't used those uh, that equipment for like over a decade, or maybe yeah. not quite that long, but a long time. And we got in, and we found, oh, it doesn't work anymore. Yeah, when it we just, went to the training dives. Yeah, oh, because we took I training dives. Yeah, yeah, we needed a refresher, and we found out they didn't work. And that was a real. So that was the first time you ever dove without them. Yes. Um, or at least with me without them. And I think you were not enjoying those dives as much. No, I wasn't. Yep. So I've looked. Uh, they don't make that. I mean, the company still exists, but this was like a very brief window, and nobody's ever made anything like it. And it was the most perfect thing. And it drives me nuts that uh, you know it's, it seems like it's almost a matter of pride. Scuba divers, oh, I refuse to talk underwater because I spent the time to learn this simple language of gestures and whatnot. Like, what? It's 2022. Everybody should be able to talk underwater by now. We were doing it in the 90s. How could this have not, how could this have actually taken steps backwards? It's crazy. Um, do you have anything else to say about scuba diving? No, it's just wonderful. Yep. Okay. I want to get back to Cozumel though. Yep. Alrighty. Lance says there, um, Lance says, Hey, everybody, I suspect Jen needs to check something because she keeps looking at the clock. Hang on, everybody. I'm going to pause for a sec. Okay, that was not a quick pause. It is now 50 minutes later because Jen had a Zoom call. So, yep. uh, which I almost fell asleep during. <laughs> it was not particularly interesting. And Jen didn't do much talking either. Oh, my gosh. I know. I probably got about three words in edgewise. Yeah, I know. You think I talk a lot. You should have heard this lady. Anyway, though, that's neither here nor there. We are going to continue... Which, by the way, honey, I do apologize. I know I talk a lot, and I try to give you every opportunity to speak, but oh. sorry if I talk over you too much. Well, I'll just give you a little kick under the table there if you, you need go. to. There you go. Yes. Uh, anyway, Lance says, There are two celebrities that I really relate to, Kevin Smith and Penn Gillette. What are your thoughts on Kevin Smith? I want to know about every movie in your history with him. <laughs> Clerks, Small Rats, Chasing Amy, Dogma, Jane, Son, and Bob Strike Back. Clerks 2, Jersey Girl, Zack and Mary, Cop Out, Red State, Tusk, Yoga Hosers, Jane, Silent Bob, Reboot, Evening With, Podcasts, and any other things of his you have seen. Well, you didn't mention the comic books that I've read. Yes, I'm a huge Kevin Smith fan. I always have been. And uh, I'm just, you don't even know who that is. I, did did, I did a that. single thing... 
the I suspect probably the only Kevin Smith movie you've ever seen, or certainly the only one you might remember. Maybe you remember Dogma, which was a uh, kind of a roadshow uh, about a couple of stoners who were try um, who were who were trying to prevent the apocalypse. And yeah, I, 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 you liked it, but yeah, I mean, you only ever saw my first count. Anyway, though, I'm a huge fan, and I've always kind of felt like on a parallel life path to Kevin Smith. We're about the same age. I'm a few years older than him, and at the same time, he was doing the impossible, uh, plucky little upstart, making an independent film that became a huge deal and a transformative to an industry. Clerks. At literally the exact same time, I was doing the same thing with Siphon Filter, um, which was a small little game made by a bunch of people who just didn't realize that what they were doing should be impossible. And we made something that went went on ahead to, you know, kind of in certain ways change the direction of an industry. And uh, you know, then he was able to make a career off of the success of that. I was able to make a career off the success of Siphon Filter. We eventually both got out of our respective careers. He was one of the pioneer podcasters of the day. And a few years later, I really went hard into YouTube, which is not something he ever particularly did, although he's got a YouTube channel now. And um, although, to be fair, he has since gone back to his roots and made more movies since then, whereas I have no desire to go back and do game design. But yeah, uh, Kevin Smith has always been one of those celebrities that, hey, if I, if you were, if you got to play a game with any celebrity, who would you want to play with? Kevin Smith would be high on my list. I used to listen to his... Um, uh, a couple of his podcasts regularly. The uh, the I, now I don't remember the names of his co-hosts. His main one, Smodcast, with you know with his uh, filmmaker producer, uh, lifelong uh, not his main sidekick but his other sidekick, Scott Mosier, and um, the one he did with uh, a kind of a science nerdy guy that uh, you know uh, you know they would talk about you know breakthroughs and technology and stuff like that. I really enjoyed both of those. But these days I just watch um, his. Uh, Fat Man Beyond with uh, Mark Bernard, and I really enjoy that. I pretty much watch every episode. Although, fortunately, there's somebody on YouTube who always puts in show notes so I can skip the parts I don't care about or spoiler parts um, and just match many things. But no, I, I'm a fan of almost all of his movies. Clerks, I thought, was really great. Mall Rats was okay. Chasing Amy was fantastic. Dogma is my second favorite of his films. Jalen, Jane, Silent Bob's, those are fine. I'm not that crazy about them. They're not my favorite things that he does, although I understand that's where a large part of his following comes in. Clerks 2 was good. I'm very much looking forward to Clerks 3. Jersey Girl um, was unfairly maligned. Zach and Mary make a porno. Him really trying to change things was an interesting experiment, as was Cop Out. I recently decided I wanted to watch that again because uh, I saw a trailer for it somehow, and I thought, wow. That's a really entertaining trailer. Red State is by far his best film. I mean, nobody thought he could had that in him, and it was amazing. Tusk, I loved, except for the ending. If he just had not stuck with that joke twist ending, I think the uh, movie would be uh, much better received. Yoga Hosers is... Hey, he made it for 12-year-old girls. Who am I to say, uh, you know, he didn't hit the target audience? Jane Son, sorry, uh, again, the Jane Son, Bob movie. Again, they're not my favorites. Uh, but yeah, I mean... I really fell in love with him, watching him do his evening with, talking about the behind-the-scenes of Superman Lives and all that stuff. So yeah, I'm a huge fan of his, and I've always thought it very interesting to compare notes. Uh, both guys in our late 40s, early 50s, who, as young men, kind of changed the industry that they kind of uh, fell into, or he worked very hard to get in there, and how to, you know what, what did that lead to his life. So... Um, Penn Jillette. I know you know who Penn Jillette is, honey. Yeah, that one. Uh, as Lance says, 
Uh, have you seen Penn and Teller live? Uh, what do you think about their TV show Bullshit or Fool Us, his podcast, and him in general as an atheist celebrity? Uh, you can certainly talk about Penn Jillette, Honey Pie, so I'll let you take that one. Oh, okay. I I love it when somebody has taken some time to think and summarized stuff and presents it in a succinct and charming manner, which I think Penn definitely does. And I What love- are you referring to specifically? Well, you must be talking about the bullshit, bullshit show. Bullshit show, yeah. yeah. But I also enjoy... Sorry, folks, I normally like to keep it clean, but that is literally the name of the show. Yeah. So we have to curse a little bit in this episode. Yeah. Anyway, go on. Um, uh, and I think also they do some of that with Fool Us as far as mm-hmm. sometimes showing us how, how they do things. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I just, I, I admire him. I respect him. I think he's great. Okay. I've never listened to his podcast. Um, I guess he has kind of libertarian leadings, which I don't necessarily agree with. Uh, but I, 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 that's hearsay. I don't really know. I'm aware he is an out and proud atheist, as am I. So I think that's fantastic. The more that's normalized, the better. Um, yeah, I thought bullshit was great. Uh, I, especially the episode about recycling, quite Ugh. frankly. Although, um, unfortunately, that has stuck with you. Yeah, well, and so with, it's, for good reason. Um, it's made my life harder because I do want to recycle more. Uh, where it's useful and it actually works, yes, definitely. But... Um, I see. And uh, yeah, we have had, I've seen Penn and Teller live twice, once in Vegas, maybe even twice in Vegas, and then we saw them also in London. I think you saw them once in London. I remember we saw them in London, and I've seen them at least once in Vegas, okay. maybe twice. Yeah. Uh, and always put on an amazing show. Um, actually, it's interesting. When we went and saw them in London, they were, as they always do, they were hanging out outside the venue just talking to whoever would come up. And I thought very long and hard about going up, because I think at the time, Bullshit was still in production. I mean, so this was a long time ago. And I wanted to go up and say, Hey, won't you guys do something about, um, you know, the... Uh, Carbs or carbohydrate, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, you know, there were there were no terms for keto or paleo at the time. This was so long ago. Uh, I mean, I mean, you know, but uh, but how, um, you know, uh, carbs are good for you is bullshit. You should totally do that. But I, I don't know. There was a lot of people. I we wanted to go home. We lived in Guilford. It was a long way to get home, so I didn't. But I mean, that would have been an amazing show for them to do if they had. Uh, but no, I. Well, he's since lost lost a lot of weight on. I don't. I, I think he's. I think he's just gone on like a hardcore vegan diet. I, I believe. I think that's the case. I'm not 100 percent oh, certain. Okay, I thought it was. Um, yeah. As has uh, Kevin Smith, coincidentally. Um, and me, I lost a lot of weight by going on a hardcore low carb diet. Uh, speaking of atheism, Lance continues. My wife and I are atheists in a small town in Texas, which is not common. We have two kids and are raising them in an atheist household in this town, and that has its challenges. What are your thoughts on atheism? How did you come to it in your life? How open are you about it with your family, friends, and people in general? Have you ever had children? No. If you, if you ever had children, children, how would you handle teaching them that? Um, well, I'm an atheist. I don't know that Jen is. I think she probably airs uh, more to the side of Just agnostic. Just a spiritual person, not a... But are you really? I mean, I don't think you are in such a way that it actually uh, you know, defines how you live your life in any way. Mm. In any kind of meaningful metric. Well, I don't... I, I bulk at... You have this touchy-feely thing. You say, I believe that there's energy. Yes, I do. And what does that mean? I don't know. There's just energy. And energy persists. And that's pretty much all you got, I think. Yeah, I, I don't know that there's a guiding spirit or anything like that. I just think we're all energy and our energies interact with each other and hopefully in a good way. Mm-hmm. 
All right, and that's Je- that's it for Jen. I don't know if <laughs> I, I don't know what you would classify her as, but me, I'm a hardcore. No, uh, yeah, there's energy as long as there's biochemical processes doing it. And when those stop, your energy stops. Boom, end of story. You're done. Your energy has to go somewhere. Yes, I mean, it it's... goes into the earth or whatever, and it makes new things. Well, yeah. Like plants or whatever grow out of your corpse. Uh, sure, okay, yeah. Yes, all right. If that's what you mean by energy, that has absolutely nothing to do with spirituality. If you're just talking about biomechanical processes... Well, that's what you were just saying. With yes, that's what I'm saying. But what you imply, or I should say more to the point, what I infer from what you said is there is something eternal. That there is you know, this concept of yours and my energy interact and intermingle and energy never goes away. That is... Okay. Basically, one step removed from, oh yeah, even when we die, we persist in some manner, that our energy goes on. Now, if you're just saying that, yes, the biochemical processes in our side, no. our body, convert into, you know, breaking down into base carbon components and heat, no. then yeah, I agree with that level of definition of there's energy, but you mean something else. I do mean something else. All right, what do you mean? I mean that we, uh, okay, just in the very basest of ways, mm-hmm. come from a huge mass of energy. Mm-hmm. And we are all part of the same thing. I am a little strand of it. You are a little strand of it. And we all come from like this huge cloud of whatever you want to call that. And I call it energy. Mm-hmm. There isn't anybody out there making rules. There isn't anybody out there judging us. We are all just part of the same stuff. And so we're interconnected that way. Right. Okay. So that's more of a, uh, oh, what's his name? Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson. We are made of star stuff. There we go. Type thing. Sure. And I think that actually came from Carl Sagan and then Neil deGrasse Tyson adopted it. Um, So, okay. So there's nothing spiritual at all. You are talking about just, you're just saying, hey, look, we all share some kind of deep level connection because we all come from the same place. That's the beginning and end of it. Uh, Because a bunch of stars uh, in the early part of the birth of the uh, universe created a whole bunch of chemical compounds that were scattered for far reaches and those things coalesce to become us we all come from the same place so we should all treat each other with kindness and respect that's basically it then right that is not how i've ever taken when you said oh i believe there's energy that binds us always sounded more like you're talking about the force quite frankly or something but that's not what you mean these are big questions Uh, don't blame me blame lance Um, the atheist i don't know why they're not the same thing what does that mean well, why isn't whatever binds us together not the force, if that's what you want to call it? Well, again, what what properties are you ascribing to this binding agent so as not to get a copyright strike against us from LucasArts? Okay, yeah. <laughs> um... In what tangible way? I mean, people who are spiritual and religious generally go a step beyond what you're doing into the, no, I have a soul. The energy you're talking about is my soul, and that defines me as a being. This crude matter matters not. It is my soul that is important, and it will go on, and therefore I have to um, live my life according to certain prescripts that have been handed down from a bunch of people who really didn't know much about anything, quite frankly, yeah, uh, to do with the re- the material reality of the existence. Um, and yet somehow they had the right thing because God told them. Um, well, right. I think so, the powers that be at the time have twisted and... Right. But anyway, so that's... There's that. I'm like, there's nothing. There's right. nothing. There's just... Uh, no wonder a, you're totally not interested in dying then. If there's nothing, nothing, nothing. Of course. Jeez. Yeah. I don't want to die. 
it's the worst and it's all over and there's so many things still to experience i will never in a thousand years experience everything this world as of today uh, offers me that I will enjoy. I mean, I can't possibly see it all here at all. And I, I want to consume more. Um, but you're, I don't know, you're somewhere between those two. And I guess you're close to me, but I still don't have a firm idea. I don't really think I know exactly either. <laughs> but, okay, so one thing that I've always thought religion had going for yes. it is the comfort of thinking that you will see your beloveds in the afterlife. Oh, sure. That would be lovely. And... That, I think, is something that makes me want to hold on to this idea that there is something more to us than just the chemicals that we're made of. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I don't know, there's been so many cultures that think that, that you have several lives or that you get to come back as something else. Sure. Not as a conscious you again, but certainly that life continues on. Mm -hmm. And so, I used to debate this with my mom, who... Um, it was very her, religious, yeah. Very Buddhist. I don't want to say, yeah, not religious, but very Very spiritual. spiritual. All right, fair enough. Yes. Thank you. Mm -hmm. She was very anti-religion. Yeah. Um, because she... But she had very strongly held concrete... all of them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was a religious scholar for the second half of her life. Yep. So... After being an Air Force nurse yeah. for the first half of well, her life. Well, and a nurse and a... And, uh, and then a professional nurse. And at some point, in her 30s, I guess, maybe her 40s... Well, I think she She said, I'm all life. about studying spirituality for the rest of my life and yeah. going to Buddhist communes and retreats. And so you've heard a lot of that from her over the years. And I'm sure it's had an influence and impact on you. Yeah. And you were saying that you and her would discuss. Yeah. So we would discuss like how, if, if there are souls out there, if there's a single mm -hmm. person and that's a soul and that person gets mm -hmm. um, born again, how is that possible? Because we've got so many people alive right now. How, how does that work? But I think what has probably happened is we're taking the energy of previous beings, meaning all the dinosaurs and everybody that died before us, mm -hmm. and that's what is giving all of this life to all of the people alive today on the on this planet right now. Right. Well, but I mean, when you say that, well, I could interpret you as saying is, oh, you're talking about fossil fuels, um, and and it's ilk. You're talking about very logical, pragmatic, nuts and bolts, carbon composition but that you're talking about beings. more than that well, you're talking the of those beings. you're talking about life force yeah i guess so yes right which is not something that can be measured in joules or pascals so you do believe there is some kind of equivalent of life force yes and you could call it literally the living force from star wars uh, because Star Wars, if you really yeah. go deep into it, has... Oh, there's the Force, which is what everybody thinks yeah, about, which is basically magic tricks. But it. no, but Lucas had... There's this whole other side to the Force, which is called the Living Force, which, um, it, you know, very briefly in the prequels, Qui-Gon Jinn in the first movie talks about. And it's like, the Jedi spend way too much time worrying about... I forget, there's the other thing. There's the active Force and the Living Force or something like that. And, and Jedi are too dogmatically focused on this one thing, when in fact, it's the Living Force you must listen to, young Padawan, he says to Obi-Wan in the first movie or something like that and um you know and there's like this whole other thing and that's um you know about you know that that's much more closer to souls and katras that's why in star wars um uh lore qui-gon jinn was the first one who could ever become a, a force ghost whoever came back because he was mindful of the living force not whatever the other term of the force is I, now that's gonna drive me nuts i need to look it up although i didn't mean for this to become a uh, right living force and 
other. Cosmic force. There's the cosmic force and the living force. And Jedi use the cosmic force, which is how they lift rocks and, and do lightsabers and all that. But the living force is what comes from within us. And it's what allowed um, you know him to come back as a force ghost. And he trained it to... That's why you've only seen four force ghosts. Uh, Qui-Gon, who trained uh, Yoda. Uh, and he also trained Obi-Wan. And then... Um, Anakin kind of got a pass. Sorry for spoilers for 20-year-old movies, everybody. Um, but anyway, sorry, that's neither here nor there. So you are kind of in a... Well, yeah, there is some kind of living force. Well, like, I know any of this anyway, but that's just my feeling. It makes sense to me, mm-hmm. and it seems right. Okay. This is more than Jen and I have ever talked about it in the 50-plus uh, years we've known each 30. other. 30. Yes, uh, because I am 50. I met you in my 20s. And I can't do math. <laughs> I just went straight to the big number. When in fact it was the big number minus the small number equals the medium number. Oopsie. Well, anyway. Um, but it's hard. This stuff is hard. Ah, for me it's super easy. Because that's... I mean, I, I, I don't begrudge you feeling that way, honey. If it makes you feel better and if it makes you a better person, hey, that's great. Uh, but that holds no value or... Um, uh, meaning to me, because to me it's it's just all simple science. We are we are just really just ridiculously complex organisms um, that have gotten big enough with our brains that we can start telling ourselves comforting stories. Mm. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being comforted. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. Which is the part that Alanis Morissette, or no, Cheryl Crow left out of the song, unfortunately. She really should have added that, but then it wouldn't flow quite as nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what are your thoughts on my atheism, honey pie? I think it's absolutely fine. Okay. Because yeah. are you worried that because I am not, I don't believe in it, therefore I will not. But No, your no, beliefs because... do not require belief. Right. Unlike the standard dogmatic religious practices, which trade on the fact that, okay, you will be punished eternally if you do not do what we tell you to do as a form of control, societal control. Yes. Right. So you don't prescribe to that. Right. No. So you're not worried. You figure, yeah, I'll, I'll live on and we'll be together again or, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah. That's all cool. That's lovely. I just, I don't believe in it. Um, let's see. And if you don't believe in it, that's fine. Yeah. Because it may, because I'll still benefit anyway. Yeah. Best case scenario. I just read something. About, mm-hmm. Oh, it was in. It was. I think it was in the Tower of London. How? Jen just got back from a two-week trip to England. Yeah. So essentially, there was something where, when the Protestant and the Catholics crap was going on in England. Sure. How? Well, it's kind of on some level never stopped. But anyway, go okay, on. Okay, I know. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's just yeah, boggles yeah, yeah. my mind. Yeah. But anyway, essentially, at some point in that history, the one or the other of them, was able to sign a piece of paper that said, I declare I am a Catholic, or I declare I'm a Protestant, and I, since I've signed my name to that, I now have entry to God and heaven and all that stuff, regardless of if I get tortured later on and been, and have to and renounce recant. it because oh. of the torture and all Really? That. Because I've signed this piece of paper, I'm still I good. got the magic ticket. Wow. And I, I thought, oh my gosh. So, kind of the same thing, honey. Hey. Don't worry, you got the magic ticket. All right. Either way, if you believe, you don't believe, it's okay. Whatever is going to happen is going to happen. Jen says, it's all good in the hood. Yep. It's all good, man, yep. is Jen's approach. That's cool. I'm totally fine with that. Um, let's see. It's an absolutely incredible to me to have learned some of what 
went on. Oh, it was it was Shakespeare too. Shakespeare was a closet. One or the other of them. Yes. Which was the wrong wait, one wait, for wait, that wait, time. The, yeah, the one that was out of favor, sure. Yeah, and how he had to live his life hiding mm. who he was. This Whatever this teeny tiny difference was between the Catholics and the Protestants. Yeah. And it made everybody's life such a living hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, that kind of stuff goes on. I mean, with the Sunni and Shia divide. Um, yes. Which I'm, I'm sure is very important to people who are really engaged with that. But to the rest of us say, well, this is so inconsequential. You know, whether it was the cousin or the the, the student, or, you know, I, 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 at some point or other I've looked or into them, I, 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 I've seen the particulars, but I, it is, there, there are certainly parallels there that um, lead to so much strife and suffering for no good reason. Um, because we are, um, you know, hardwired into our brain looking for any opportunity to find a difference between ourselves so that we can take comfort and safety uh, from the fact that, oh, I'm in this group here, but this group can't exist unless it's in opposition to that group over there. Uh, because that's... But it doesn't have to be that way. I know. We don't need that anymore. No, we can Tribalism, be humans. Tribalism was hugely important for us in our formative years. Literally hundreds of thousands of years ago. And it's unfortunately something we have held on to that we should really let go of now because now it only holds us back. We've gotten everything we can get out of tribalism. It's time to let it go. And that circles right all the way back around to the beginning of this episode when I was talking about that is fundamentally Andrew Yang's message. Um, uh, that is fundamentally... Uh, what was it? Jason Pargin I was talking about. Uh, fundamentally his message too. Uh, or one of his many messages. So anyway... Um, uh, let's see, continuing with the Back questions, how did atheism come into my life? I remember, you know, unlike Jen, well, Jen, you grew up in a relatively religion. No, I mean, religion free. Your, your dad, your, your dad is an atheist, right? Yes, and my mom was raised in whatever the God-fearing religion it was that she was raised in. I don't even know. And she just took it... Uh, she she just that didn't, was she not did, right. Oh, okay. All right. So, so she, she rebelled rejected, against that. Yeah, she rejected that. Until she eventually found her own form of spiritualism later in life. Yeah. Um, and then your dad, you know, they ultimately split. Your dad married, I assume, another atheist. I'm assuming your yeah. dad and Nancy are both atheists. Yes. So Janet the, at, really grew up in a, a, a secular household, as did I. I'm sure my dad died an atheist. My mom, I, it was never spoken of when I was growing up either, but later in life, my mom also coincidentally went on a very, very hardcore religion kick. And, um, you know, not not uh, more far out like what your mom did, but more traditional, uh, you know, no one particular church, I don't think, but just Christianity in general. But, you know, trying to plumb all the goodness out of it yeah. because there's a lot of greatness. And there's there a lot of wonderfulness. Goodness. Yeah, yeah, I don't we mean just, to disparage. Yeah, just uh, it's just unfortunate because uh, we you don't need to have a book to tell you to be good when, in fact, it's kind of hardwired into all of us to be good. We don't need that crutch. But, um, yeah, so we both grew up in secular households. I remember as a very young child in Knight's Landing, California, at one point walking by the only church in town on the way home from school that I walked by every day. And I don't know why. Nobody was there. And I remember thinking to myself, well, you know what? If God existed... Prove it, God. Give me a lollipop or give me some bubble gum. Just make it appear. That's all I need. That's one thing I need. Oh, you didn't? Okay, then screw you. I remember having this very clear internal monologue with myself and making the decision right then and there. Well, okay, then... I gave you a chance. Yeah, but yeah, you had your chance, pal. I wasn't asking much. 
Um, and a bubble gum. Yeah. I didn't want a sign. I wanted a very specific, uh, you know, hubba bubba. Or maybe some <laughs> big league chew or whatever it was that I was chewing in the 70s. And I, I remember, I remember I, I, that really stucks with me. And obviously it's, it is literally, by definition, childish. But it was me making a very, very early decision that I made for myself. Uh, because my parents never said one thing or about it or another. And I didn't know until... Until, long, until probably 15 years after I'd left home to go off to college that I'd found out, oh, mom's gotten religious in her old age. I didn't know that. Although, actually, and then towards the end, she'd pretty much completely abandoned it again. You know, yeah, I mean, and when, for the last, in the four us. years she's been with us, there's, I mean, she still, I, I don't think she put any of her crosses out or anything like that, right? I don't believe she was reading the Bible. Yeah, or none of that stuff. She had, so she, it no, was a phase she had gone through. Yeah, we had a lot of Bibles, though. I mean, there must have been at least seven or eight Bibles. Oh, yeah, that you know, when we were going through her stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, everybody goes through phases in their lives. Yeah. Uh, how open are we? I've, I've always, ever as I was a little kid, um, actually, the most convenient thing about being an atheist is whenever Jehovah's Witnesses or you know any other missionaries come knocking on the door uh, and they say, well, have you heard the, we'd love to share with you the word of the Lord or whatever. Sorry, I'm an atheist. And that just, boop. Okay, well, let's go to the next house. So that's always been very convenient. I've been, I've been very, very happy to have uh, that uh, get out of jail free card, get out of conversation free card, uh, many many times over the years. But um, yeah, I don't think I've ever ever been in a situation where I had to keep that to myself for polite. And you know, actually, I'm curious now. Um, rise of 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 uh, agnostic. Uh, I, 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 I just let's see. Uh, the number of Americans with no religious affiliation is rising, according to the Scientific American. The world's newest major religion, no religion. So, I mean, there's tons of articles about this. That you know, I'm sorry, religion, you are on the ropes. Uh, you know, come back in 500 years, you're gone, baby. You're gonesville. Uh, it was interesting. Uh, Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, always wanted to keep religion and God and anything. He said, "Hey, in the future, he was a." Famous uh, atheist too. In the future, this will all be gone. Um, and writers are always trying to sneak some in because, hey, they're writing stories about really they're writing stories about people of today um, under the guise of aliens of tomorrow. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I think over time we will completely abandon it. And that's not to say people who are listening to this right now who get a lot of meaning in their life, hey, that's great. I'm happy that you get me in your life. As I said earlier, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. As long as you're not hurting anybody else. The very important caveat to that wonderful Sheryl Crow song that I wish he'd put in there so I could just sing the lyrics as originally stated. If you had children, how would you deal with it? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, you could ask me many things. If I had children, how would I deal with X, Y, or Z? I have no <laughs> idea. I've never given it thought one. Um, I guess I would probably just follow in the footsteps of my parents. Yeah. Hey, it's just not a topic. Uh, I can this... remember as a kid, mm -hmm. um, I had uh, Sheila Jurgensen. Uh, she were they were Mormons. Oh, was a friend of yours, okay. a friend of mine, and she said, "Would you like to come to church with me?" Yeah. And we'd never gone to church or anything, and uh -huh. so I asked my mom if I could, and she said no. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, because she had a very strong oh yeah 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 to from her. from her because of her upbringing yeah yeah, um, and so that was really interesting. That's kind of the first imposition of religion mm -hmm. with the yes or a no kind mm -hmm. of thing in my life. But the weird thing was, mm -hmm. mom told me yeah. That when I was a little girl... So this is years later, as an adult having a conversation with yeah, you? Like yeah, like okay. within the last 10 years or whatever. Mm -hmm. She said that when I was a little girl, like maybe two or three, she says, I would have conversations with the baby Jesus. Really? Yeah. 
just talking to yourself and you, who are you talking to? Baby Jesus. Yeah, and who would I, how would I have even known there was a baby <laughs> Jesus? Uh, that's a good question. I, mean, I don't know. So that is a very weird <laughs> thing. So I must have had some influence in my life. Someone, maybe a babysitter or something. Something, yeah. And it wasn't mom, but yeah. the baby Jesus and I, we were... Well, I mean, yeah, in, in, in our childhood in the 70s, obviously, religious influence was a much bigger part of pop culture. It's just much more assumed. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that is uh, falling with every passing uh, generation. Okay, uh, Lance then followed up with another email where he changed the topic entirely. Because based on our RV conversation of the previous oh. podcast, Lance wanted to suggest an app called Road Tripper or other trip planning apps. Sure, there's many other ones. On their road trip last summer, they used it to make the trip not or make it so much better. Uh, we had a few destinations, but left extra time to get to each place and use the app to find things as we drove. Oh, nice. There are tons of fun things to do in the middle of the country, especially if you're interested in things like national parks, hot springs, etc. Uh, we don't have an RV, but we regularly stay at, what is KOA Campground? What is the Campground KOA? Campground of America. Campground of America, with a K? Yes. All right. Uh, I think there are KOA sites in every state and even some non-destination places in case you just need to stop. Uh, you can tell they're located between two major destination stops. Also, as a person who does not have... Or, oh, and then he's... Uh, all right, so... Uh, well, that's just a bit of advice, Honey Pie. Cool. Uh, to your point of, I don't want to drive across country. It'll be the most boring thing ever. Apparently, you need to download Road Tripper for your phone, and you will be surprised. Okay. All righty. Thank you. Thank you, Lance. And then Lance finishes with, as a person who does not have much time for YouTube... Good for you. Yeah. Um, quite frankly, it's probably more, much more important things to do in life. I really hope Lance continues that the podcast continues. It's my one way to keep up with the best voice in board gaming. You must mean Jen. Um, <laughs> totally understandable if you can, but I've really got my fingers crossed. Just a few thoughts, thanks. Yeah, actually, it's interesting, um, Lance. I haven't recorded the intro for this episode yet, but I will have to mention, um, you know, what was it? Five months ago, I mentioned, hey, this might be the last podcast because we have fallen so low in the Patreon funding. And the Patreon funding has climbed back up, but it's still below where it used to be to do the podcast. And uh, Elf Creek Games, who I mentioned right at the beginning of the show, although I haven't recorded it yet, uh, um, <laughs> well, has stepped up to sponsor the last five episodes, but they just signed up for five. I don't have anything lined up, so I don't know. This might be, once again, the last episode uh, or not. Or, again, the backers on Patreon, they can say, well, okay, Rado, we'll have one less run through a month from you so that we can have the podcast instead. I'm fine either way. Uh, you know, they're all about the same amount of work. So we'll see how things go. But thank you very much, Lance. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Even if I stop doing this Q&A podcast, of course, there's still all the other stuff on the podcast channel that would continue. The R&Rs with Ruel, the occasional top tens, the the roundups and all that stuff. But, you know... Uh, you know, and, and you know, and that includes now that I've started doing live streaming, the behind the scenes stuff, uh, and that's a lot of that's kind of Q and A focus. So that kind of stuff might continue as well, but but it'd probably be a lot less of what we're doing right now, talking about the existence of God, um, uh, which is probably you don't hear that much in most uh, board game podcasts. Nazgoth uh, says, after years of not being very interested in the doggo part of the podcast, we suddenly realized we need a dog. Oh. Especially their six-year-old daughter who uh, who will never have a brother or sister uh, that she wants due to medical reasons. Also, since the pandemic, we're allowed to work much more often from home, which means from now on, we have more time to take care of a dog. Uh, it would be home alone only one day a week for about nine hours. And, you know, and dogs can totally handle that. Um, you know, that's, yeah. Uh, yeah, if, if, if they're, if they're introduced to it 
if they're introduced to it well. Uh, after lots of research, we think a beagle Ooh! might be the best fit for us. That came as a bit of a surprise because for some reason I had the impression beagles were a bit too wild and intrusive as a first family dog. But the information I gathered seems to contradict those prejudices. In your years of experience, would you recommend a beagle as a first dog? We have no experience at all, but are willing to learn and will definitely take good care of him or her. Okay, well, first of all, get a girl. Okay. Get a girl dog. They are so much easier. Uh, there's a lot of things. I mean, of course, you'll probably get either one. Um, okay, well, Spain, why? But... Why get a girl instead of a guy? Well, okay, Boy. I was just in England, and I spent some time. My, my friend, I, I stayed with her the weekend, and she had a male dog. Okay. And it is incredible. Which was fixed, I assume. Um, Did not have yes. its bollocks. Its bollocks had been removed. All right, anyway, go on. Um, it was just amazing how much more... And it, maybe this was the dog, but anyway. What kind just, of dog was it? It was a little Yorkie. A Yorkie, okay. Yorkshire Terrier. Um, just much more dominant, much more energetic, much more out there sniffing around, looking at stuff, um, much less interested in just having a nice cuddle and hanging out with mm -hmm. you. So, uh, and again, it could have been that. That's one data dog. point. It's not definitive. Could yeah. be anecdotal, but yeah. But, but that's your understanding you in think general. About Nancy's dog. Okay, yes. Zach, same thing. Mm hmm. Just there, I think there's just a different male or female energy, mm -hmm. and I prefer the female energy. And it seems that since you haven't requested a male, that you also prefer the female. Uh, I growing up, uh, my first dog Lucky was a girl, our second dog Wiggles was a girl, our third dog Boatnik was a girl, and then Harley was a boy, and that was all the dogs we had when I was growing up. Harley, I knew Harley. Har yeah, uh, oh, and then uh, Hobbs. Hobbs, Hobbs was, was a, boy. a boy. But, I mean, they got Hobbs after I moved, went off to college. Uh, and Harley was a stray. I was just waiting um, for Mom to pick me up uh, at high school one day because I had stayed late for practice for the play I was in. And um, she had to pick me up because... I did have a driver's license, but for some reason I wasn't driving at that moment, or the car was, I don't know, who knows what. But anyway, I hadn't stayed up at the high school. The high school, North Mason High School, is at the top of a very, very long, like, quarter-mile wooded hill road. And I, to save her the time from having to drive all the way up, because it was kind of a pain, I had walked all the way down to the main road. And I was just sitting there along a very busy two-lane, very fast road, and this mutt walked up. And uh, just wouldn't go away. And so I petted the mutt and uh, maybe gave you some food or something like that. And then when mom eventually showed up, uh, Harley, which we ultimately named him, just kept trying to get back, jump in the car. And, uh, and mom said, well, we can't just leave him here. He doesn't yeah. have a collar. I'm sure they checked to see if he was chipped. He I'm probably sure. wasn't chipped. Yeah. And uh, so that's how we ended up there getting Harley. Chips back then. Yeah. And uh, I mean, but that was like, I mean, I was only, only had Harley for a year because then I went off to college. But. I, I don't know. I'm trying to remember. That's my one real experience, other than, like you said, Zach um, and uh, Frankie, right? Their new dog is a boy, yeah. also. Yep. I would Zach say you're probably with right. Us for a couple, yeah. like a month or something in Austin when they went Yeah, on a I would say you're probably right. There is, I, I, I probably, yeah. I mean, I think probably they are probably predisposed to be a little bit more dominant, um, which. I you know more high energy, more high strong. I don't know, but yeah, I've 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 I can certainly say for most of my life I've had great luck with female dogs. So yeah, yes, and also they pee on everything. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, there's leg. That is mo much more work 
to house train a male dog than a female dog. Yes, and they just go into your house and they will pee on things as well, mm -hmm. I've seen. Mm -hmm. Yes, I have. Yep, yep. So anyway, I think just get a girl dog. It's going to be a lot easier from the get-go no matter what you get. Mm -hmm. um, plus, there's the thingy on the tummy that you don't have to avoid. You can do... No lipstick issues. Lipstick? When a dog gets an erection, their penis comes out of the sheath and it looks like a red stick of lipstick. Okay, I wasn't even talking about that. I'm just talking about that thing right there in the middle that I the don't want to pass. penis shaft, yes. Just yes. yuck. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so girls are good for that. Um, and uh, so back to Beagle. Beagle or something else. Our first dog was Well, he had more questions. I don't know if you have much experience with kids. Do you think a Beagle would be a good family dog? Uh, do you have experience raising Beagle puppies, or do you always adopt them later? Um, do you have any advice, uh, warnings you can give, anything you've wished you'd known about before having your first Beagle or dog in general? A dumb dog question. When adopting a dog, did you always keep their old name, or did you and Jen choose a new name for yourself? All right. So there, there's some specific okay. stuff. So okay. first of all, kids. Obviously... We don't have kids, but you've got a lot more experience with kids than me. What are your thoughts about dog beagles specifically in kids? Well, do you remember Dobby and the, the two neighbor kids next to us in Austin? Mm -hmm. Can we take your dog for a walk? Yes. Oh, she loved It them. seems like every beagle we've had loves children. Yes, including Daisy, who's half beagle. Yeah, who's half, yeah. And just absolutely adores children. It seems like they're very uh, good and gentle. Uh, they can be a little um, rambunctious if you have very, very young kids, like, you know, toddlers, that the dog might not be smart enough to realize, oh, if I jump up and put my paws on the shoulder, I will knock the toddler over because I just want to sniff or lick their face. Yeah. So we're talking about that. But, I mean, if your kids are four or five or six, probably even three or four, I can't imagine there's any problem. What? I've just seen, did he say how old his kids are? Uh, no, he did no, not. No, he has one kid. Uh, yes, they have one six-year-old daughter. Okay. So, no, no. I mean, uh, really that, that, that beagle is probably going to love your daughter like nobody's beeswax. Yes. Um, and just want to snuggle with her all the time. Um, and has yeah. some adventures, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I would say, I mean, certainly to your specific questions, the biggest thing to know is, as I understand it, Beagles are harder to train than a regular dog, right? They are a higher level of difficulty. They are more, they have a more stubborn propensity towards stubbornness than other breeds. Is that than correct? Some other breeds. Yes. yes. Um, because they are, you know, they were hunting dogs yeah. at one point. So, so they're they are, very they're, scent driven. And they're more independent. They are, independent they were thinkers. bred to be relatively free thinkers. Yeah. Because they are hunting dogs. Yep. So <laughs> that's something to bear in mind. Yep. And um, so our first uh, beagle, Dobby, we had from. Puppy. Six weeks old yeah. or eight weeks old or something like that. And you worked very, very hard with Dobby. Yeah, I can remember that she was a tough teenager. At about two years old, she got a little bit rebellious and mm -hmm. stubborn. Um, but once we got through that period, she was great. Well, what did that? What did you have to do? I was working full-time, so I have no idea what yeah. went into the training of Dobby. I think she... Uh, well, so for the first couple of years of her life, she was with Scuttle, our first dog, who yes. was very well-trained and a lovely dog. Why was Scuttle so well-trained? Scuttle was a... Uh, Lhasa Opso Mutt. Yeah, we don't know what the other half was. Lhasa Opso and something. Yeah, and, and we got Scuttle at six or eight weeks as well. That was yeah. our first dog. Why was Scuttle so well-behaved? Um, well, Lhasa Opsos were palace guardian dogs yes and so their interest is primarily sticking close to their people and guarding them mm -hmm. whereas beagles primary interest is going out and hunting flushing and, game and such yeah so you're looking at two different kinds of personality there um but scuttle trained dobby mm -hmm. and so i think that's one reason we had a really good well i mean scuttle it's not like scuttle was actively saying oh sit roll over yeah. but rather you're saying scuttle gave dobby a good Reference point. Yeah. Or this is how I should be. Yeah. Uh, there's no other dogs around. This is how this dog is acting. It's how I'll act. Yep. Right. Yep. 
Where are you saying then that that two year stubborn was that after Scuttle died? No, I think okay. Scuttle was still with us. Then. Okay, but Scuttle was getting old, of course. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was just. I think that there are. You know, like toddlers, they have that kind of terrible twos. And I think Dobby just also had that time where she was pushing her boundaries and seeing what... And it wasn't that long. I think it was maybe a six-month period. Right, but what... She sort of forgot her training and kind of pushed boundaries and wasn't listening as well, wasn't, you know, following commands well. I, I, I That was like 20 years ago, yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'm mm -hmm. trying to remember. But I do remember feeling like, oh, beagles. Because I don't, didn't remember that was Scuttle. Right. But Scuttle got a lot less slack, too. Scuttle got had to sleep in her own little room from the day one, and we treated her like a dog. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> as you yeah. Yeah, because that was, I read some books about how to do it, and then we did it how the books said. Yeah, the crating um, stuff. and Yeah, yeah. and all of that. And, uh, you know, obviously, the longer we had Scuttle, the more relaxed we got, and I think then Dobby came into our lives when we were far more relaxed. Mm -hmm. So, um, but, but she was never a mean dog. She was never... You know, would never hurt anybody or any of that. So as far as having kids around a dog, I think um, beagles are, are fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. I, I think you're right, um, Lance. That they are pretty widely regarded as amazing family dogs. Yes, definitely. I mean, there's a reason the most famous cartoon of dog of all time was a beagle, Snoopy. Yep. Yep. Um, so yeah, so we had a beagle puppy in Dobby, but the other beagles that we've had, we've gotten as adults. Yeah, rescue dogs. Yeah. Um, and we renamed every dog we got. No, we didn't. Tallulah came as Tallulah. We ne renamed one of the three dogs we got. Yes. <laughs> I don't know why I said Gertrude that. Gertrude came as Gertrude. Yes. Daisy is a stray. We have no idea what her name was. Right. So we called we, her. And we, if we could have, we would have, if we knew what her name was, I'm sure yeah. we would have stuck with it. We but we had no dog. choice. And it was fine. I, I, I think people change dogs' names all the time and they adapt. They're used to it. It's not yeah. that big a deal for them. Nope. Um, we have many times. We don't I, I, speak Italian to her no. either. I have uh, gone on websites and tried uh, top 20 common dog names in Italy, because she's a Sicilian dog, and tried them at her, and she never really seemed to... There was one word, one name that we did see she kind of responded to once, but then she stopped very quickly, so, yeah, so it might have just been was. some... yeah. Uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't think changing name is a big deal at all. Uh... I mean, gosh, oh, well, what's so, going on with that gigantic, you know, that, that huge rescue of beagles? Oh. Is that still so, happening or is that already gone? I think is it's already going finished? on. It's 4,000 beagles, but the problem is mm -hmm. they're, um, they have no socializing at all. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be a bit of work to get those dogs. But, oh, my gosh, they will be such great dogs because they have led such a miserable life. Yeah, they they'll just be so happy. They yeah. so much. Yeah. Yeah, so if you could get one of those, um, what's the lab called? I don't know. Them? I mean, if if you do a search for four thousand beagles, beagles, it's it's a major news story. Honestly, when we first heard about it, I thought for sure Jim was going to say, "Okay, well, we have to get five. Um, I would love that. Mm -hmm. Well, why didn't we? Because I'm. I don't know what our future holds. Yeah, four thousand beagles. The Humane Society of America. I mean, there, there it was around four thousand beagles were from and a uh, mass breeding facility. from a yeah, which was a, oh, a research firm. Oh, beagle puppies. Yeah. So I okay. They were so, all yeah. 
So if you're seriously thinking about it, it, this is literally a crisis because they will have to start putting down hundreds, if not thousands of dogs because they've rescued them from these this breeding lab breeding facility where thing. Where the conditions were awful. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so they are looking for people everywhere. They're looking for people all around the country, all around the world to try to rehome this amazing drop. So it's certainly something you might want to look at. And if you just do a Google search for 4,000 beagles, you'll find lots of stories about it. And, um, and I'm sure... If you contact them, they'll have all. You could say, "Look, this, this is our situation. We have a six-year-old daughter who will never have a sibling. We think beagles are great. We want to help, and they'd probably be able to give you all kinds of advice, much more than us, because we are rank amateurs, quite frankly." Well, and also, just so that you have some comfort about this, these beagles are being taken into shelters, and and my understanding is, mm-hmm. you know, people are working with them. They're socializing them. Yeah. They're training them. They're giving them, you know, a grounding. And then they'll also be able to tell you about that, those particular, you know, if they've got five beagles or ten beagles, they'll be able to say, oh, well, you know, Julie Beagle over here. Sure, yeah. She'd be that's... the better one for your particular situation yeah, yeah, as yeah. opposed to Nelson Beagle over here. Yeah. So you, you can make a big difference there. Yes, um, that would be awesome. Yeah. Uh, let's see, what else? Uh, so Gertrude, uh, our, our, which is our second Earth. beagle. Um, no, Tula was our second beagle. Our third beagle. Uh, Gertrude and Tula are twins because they, they are, are they are literally similar. cousins. So yeah. it's, I, I conflate the two of them together. Tula, our third beagle, no. she vice versa. Gertrude, our third beagle, that's living with us. We right don't now. know the particulars, but she had been raised to be a show dog, a Crufts level dog, Which is and like what she had been with. adopted for that. And as we understand it, it turns out she did not have the the temperament for it. And so the people who adopted her apparently lived in an apartment and kept her in a crate like 20 hours a day or something like that. No! And, folks, I am very sorry, but apparently I screwed up with some copying and pasting while putting episode 87 together, and this is where the episode ends! At a cliffhanger about Gertrude! What was about to happen? Well, don't worry. Uh, If you check your podcast feed, I have now uploaded the final segment of episode 87 so you can continue hearing the story plus about 50 minutes more of Q&A that is yet to come. Again, my apologies for some bad copying and pasting on my part. So, uh, hang on. We'll be right back when you get to the final part of this episode. Okay, 